This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Wednesday morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here with Jeff Simpson and Terry South. The gang is gathered to give you the best, the latest information, the, the, the stuff you need to know to live a healthier, happier life. Welcome to the program. Holy cow, the world's a rockin'. Uh, earthquakes in Mexico, Puerto Rico, now under siege. Uh, Hurricane Maria packs 155-mile-an-hour wind gusts as it uh, roars over Puerto Rico. By the way, the strongest storm to hit the island since 1932 and second wow. time it's been hit. This poor island, unbelievable stuff. Flooding in San Juan and the worst is still yet to come. Mm. What do you do? And Mexico has an earthquake. 200 people have died already from the earthquake in Mexico, a 7.1. Crazy. The world is just a rumbling. And uh, President Trump at the UN. Yeah. Calling out Rocket Man. Unbelievable. I don't know why he has such a – why does he have such bad feelings against Elton John? (laughs) Sir Elton John. What did Sir Elton John ever do to President Trump? I'm guessing he doesn't even know there's a song called Rocket Man by Elton John. You don't think so? If if he knows, He's he, a very he recently found out, and it's because his people told him. Oh, yeah. Probably. Poor – I mean, it could be a good thing or a bad thing for Elton John. Now his song will be played a lot. Maybe a revival. You never know. Uh, also, interesting um, – Day that if you want to be the coolest person in your office, today is the day because we're celebrating Pepperoni Pizza Day. Pizza with an accent. Wow. There's this is this is the original version of We Like Pizza from Pizza Kids. Not to be confused with all the other knockoffs of this song. Oh, yeah. I know. The remix is <laughs> yeah. crazy. I used to love to dance to this song. I like tomato and pepperoni. This is what you remember you guys probably don't remember this. Back in the day before YouTube. I don't know if you remember this those days. Sure. You couldn't pull up a song like this. You wouldn't even have known this song existed. What did we ever do? I know. You used to you know what we used to do? This'll kill you. We used to talk. Huh? Uh-huh. What's like, that? We would gather around like the radio. Okay. And then radio? during commercials we'd turn it off and then we would just talk as a family. Guess what we talk about? Pizza? Exactly. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think that even I think that was even before the pizza was invented. Pizza puts everyone about. on common ground. Yeah. Who doesn't love it? This is the international sensation. The Germans love it, apparently. Apparently. Ah, those were the days. Pineapple Today. and anchovies. <laughs> Today's the day, folks. Pepperoni Pizza Day. You want to be the king? Isn't it like the most boring pizza you could buy? Well. Pineapple and anchovies? Ooh, I don't know. Pineapple, no. Pineapple and um, Canadian bacon. Mm-mm. But like pepperoni, it's... I mean, the only thing less would be a cheese pizza. No, it's pepperoni and sausage all the way. That's yeah. boring. No, that's my, that's my. Well, yeah, you add sausage, you spice it my, up a little bit. That's my jam. It is kind of the. It's the generic 
meat pizza. Yeah. Have you ever just picked up a sleeve of pepperonis and oh eat? yeah? Oh, that I was... used to sneak them all the time growing up, and my dad would always not be pleased with that. Was that like dad's secret stash? No, Pepperoni it was just stash? in the fridge, and oh, those you know, were good living. We had a big family and needed it for the pizza. Yeah, those are the days. Do you remember? Yeah, I just told you about it. Now what's funny is you can go get a sleeve just of now. pepperonis just, just for $5, or you can go to Little Caesars Pizza and get a pizza for $5. Yeah. It's true. Mm. Gosh, what do you While do? you're listening to the Pizza Kids. Maybe what we ought to do is have a little lunch pizza. Oh, you guys always leave. Yeah, I'm gone by lunch, so. so you want, like, mid-morning breakfast pizza. Let's do, do that. that. Have a little breakfast burrito pizza. I told my wife last night I may need to skip pizza night this week. Oh, no, you for sure need to skip pizza night. I think the reason you're in the problem you're in, needing to lose about three and a half pounds in eight days, is that how long? Yeah, yeah. Is because of pizza night. I don't know how One to... night a week? Yeah. Like, no. No, Come yeah. On. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How much pizza do you eat on that night? I eat very little. Three slices? No. Two slices. I mean, they're, what, those 8-inch, 9-inch round pizzas, and I eat maybe a third of one of those. Wow. So you eat... Hardly any. Three inches of pizza, hardly any. Not bad. I would down the whole pizza. Yeah, I usually do. I always do one to four pieces. One to four? Yeah. Well, that's a Anywhere nice big range. It's a nice range. Four is where you cut it off because after four, it's just too much. You know when I, I know when to stop. <laughs> when my leg goes numb, when my right leg is numb. That's a good good stopping point. I'm done I'm done for the night. When yeah. you're sweating, when you start sweating, that's probably <laughs> Ooh, yeah. a good indicator you Pizza need to stop. sweats. Ah, uh, pepperoni sweats. Those are the best. <laughs> when was the last time you were sweating pepperoni? Such a good day. Today, by the way, with all of these disasters, you can see why we need – and why some of these countries need so much foreign aid. Mm. So today we're going to be speaking with a professor and, and an expert on do-it-yourself uh, – what are they called? Like doing your, do-it-yourself foreign aid. Little organizations are popping up all over the country. I think there's like 11,000 foreign aid groups that are trying to you know, collect money, take money, and then take it as a charity and go to these countries and help. And they're going to need to do that because President Trump is backing off and pulling away funding for a lot of these organizations or like for like the, a lot of the international organizations. I heard someone explain this. Uh, the governmental organizations called USAID. So yeah, USAID. USAID. Um, or USAID. If you want to pronounce it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, the benefits of, of giving this money, it's, actually, it's quite a bit of money that we, we supply to people that are having droughts and famines yeah. and other issues, and we help them with infrastructure. As long as they're stable, then whatever problems happen there don't come over here. Yeah, yeah. Right? So we're actually helping ourselves by helping them. Yeah. And when we stop helping them, then all of a sudden, like the Ebola crisis, right? Mm-hmm. When that happened, we wanted it to stay over there. Right. We wanted to let's contain it. Let's just give them some money. And so we, we were able to use funds and mm-hmm. get in there and help. Build some fences to you, keep them over you pull, there. You pull those back, then what do we do? We just say right. you can't come into our country. That's right. That's right. It's, it's like your HOA where you pay into Homeowners the HOA. It really is. And you, what you do is you then are basically paying to get other people around you to quit doing things that lower your property value. Yeah. It's a bad analogy. Yeah. But it's 
it's the idea. So if but President Trump is is going to be cutting uh, supposedly a lot of the aid to foreign countries, but I, or actually he's using it to leverage yeah. countries like. You know, you want to build a wall? You don't want the wall? Then we'll just use the aid we give you and build the wall instead. Which is exactly what you said he would do. I'm telling you. It's a highly, I'm a highly trained professional. Hmm. That's why I have a show. Actually, that's not why. Terry, is your wife asking you what you're wearing again today? No. Oh, I thought you were taking another I, selfie. I updated my phone software yesterday. Uh-oh. Now it has the artificial uh, AR Artificial reality capabilities. So there's all these games where you just stack things on the desk, and oh boy, it's so distracting. So there we go. We've lost him for about next a day. hour. I'll be uh, building railroad tracks for Thomas the Train Engine to see if uh, my son would enjoy that. <clears throat> Aren't you wondering why Jeff brought up your dress and your attire? Well, it was yesterday. My <laughs> wife was concerned. We're having family pictures this weekend. Oh, apparently our photographer is very concerned about the wardrobe. And how that'll Has match. Has the photographer met you? Uh, no. Well, that's what the photographer ought to be concerned about. My, my wife sent her a picture of a blue shirt. And I go, that's me right there. <laughs> I'll wear that. Just that blue shirt. That's my blue shirt. We're taking family photos today. Look, are you really? But, you know, we've been preparing for weeks. Oh, this will be fun. That'll be a neat thing to talk about tomorrow. <laughs> mm, will it? Uh-huh. Family photos? Yo, those are great. Mm. You know what I would do? The best photos are the ones where everyone's crying. And the parents are looking at the camera like, here we go. Are we done? Can we go? <laughs> I have, you, have you have like beautiful daughters, I'm sure, that, that will pose elegantly. Yeah. Uh, you know, we did just take family photos about three months ago. So Usually oh, well, in our family, why, you, why do you take so many family photos? Well, the first, the, the one three months ago was right after my son was born. And we didn't have yeah. a photographer come to the hospital. So these were kind of the... Newborn photos. Okay, those are the NB photos. Yeah. Newborn. Right. These are going to be the three months post-birth photos. There's just going to be family photos. Okay, family photos. Yeah, wait till you're my age. You're like, <laughs> let's not even take a picture anymore. Because every time we've ever taken a picture, one of the children had bloodshot eyes, puffy bloodshot eyes. Mm. Yeah, but now you can fix stuff like that. That's so true. Yeah, you just go in. Can you get rid of the red eyes and the the puffy face? And that's just for me. Uh, So we'll be talking foreign aid and uh, the do-it-yourselfer. There's a lot of models where just one person says, hey, Uganda needs more of this. I'm going to build a charity, basically. They build a charity. They go over and get water out of wells in Uganda. They do it themselves. We don't need governments to do all of this. No. So we'll talk about the future of the do-it-yourself um, foreign aid model is it does it work and is it what happens if President Trump uh, pulls a lot of the national funding interesting insight there um, but uh, let's before we get to all of this let's go get caught up on the world find out what's happening so we can uh, really understand our world around us Terry what's going on as we were talking about Hurricane Maria category four storm hit Puerto Rico around six fifteen Eastern this morning the eye of the storm made landfall but the wind and rain had been uh, beating the island for hours mm. as it approached. The storm brought sustained winds 155 miles per hour after leaving the U.S. Virgin Islands and Dominica in ruins. More than 11,000 people were huddled in government shelters across Puerto Rico uh, waiting for Maria to pass. Barbara Toner, 35, hasn't had power since Hurricane Irma hit. That was, oh. what, last week, yeah. 10 days ago? People are still freaking out, she says. It's just uh, We were watching the news last night. There's all these homes. People are like, okay, so my home still doesn't have a roof from Irma. Now what are we supposed to do? Yeah, which which storm pays for it? 
So, Unbelievable. And there were people in the shelters still from Irma. Yeah. And then yeah. everybody from Maria now are coming into the shelters. Yeah. So Unbelievable just stuff. devastation. A bipartisan effort to stabilize Obamacare's health insurance markets has collapsed as top Republicans and Democrats on the Senate Health Committee were not able to reach an agreement on the proposal. Senator Lamar Alexander from Tennessee, the committee's chairman, had been working with Senator Patty Murray from Washington, the uh, ranking uh, member, the Democrat on the committee, on a uh, bipartisan bill following four hearings that were held earlier this month to examine ways to prevent premiums from skyrocketing in 2018. Earlier Tuesday, Alexander seemed pessimistic about the prospects of reaching a deal, blaming Democrats for getting behind a single-payer uh, health care system and Republicans for reviving repeal-and-replace efforts. It didn't, it didn't work? Basically, Bernie Sanders came out with his single-payer thing last week. Yeah. And then there's... Uh, Lindsey Graham and, and Cassidy. Cassidy, Cassidy, they have their bill, which is a repeal and replace, and that destroyed any of the bipartisan effort to actually stabilize the system that's there. Did you hear about what Jimmy Kimmel did yes. with Bill Cassidy? Bill Cassidy came out supporting, when Jimmy Kimmel came out talking about his son. Yeah, because his son had had open heart surgery, and he had talked to Bill Cassidy from Louisiana on the show, and he came out on the show, I think, last night and said that he wasn't very honest. Cassidy right. wasn't honest about his proposal. His deal doesn't help. It doesn't. It wouldn't people. help people the way he claimed it would help people. Yeah. Which it's an interesting thing because I mean this is a comedian with a son with a heart condition who's now ticked. Yeah. A, and he said, "Don't don't come to my show to sell your bill." So wow, we'll it's have pretty to intense. See how that works. Either White House Chief of Staff John Kelly had a bad headache on Tuesday, or President Trump's debut address before the United Nations General Assembly was giving him one. While Trump was calling North Korean leader Kim Jong-un rocket man, threatening total destruction of uh, North Korea, Kelly sat beside First Lady Melania Trump, I think he sat behind her, uh, with his head in his hands and his eyes on the ground. Another notable reaction <laughs> was displayed by representatives from Zimbabwe who looked equally parts amused, concerned, and sleepy. <laughs> North Korea, they walked out of the room when Trump yeah. stood up, leaving a minor junior deputy there to kind of sit hey, in the seat. Jimmy, but, watch the desk. No, he had to stay. Everyone else left. Okay. So. But, G- but France got ticked. Uh, what's his name? Um, Macron. 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 Yeah. Macron. I don't know how you hmm. say it. Yeah, it's, it's uh, like that. But he was like, no, 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 we're not here. We don't, we don't believe in escalation. Oh, wow. We're here for diplomacy. Oh, wow. We won't the follow of the, the line UN. of escalation. Oh, nice. Well, that's interesting. But he didn't, like, directly say it to Trump, but it was about Trump's speech. Yeah, it's all very passive-aggressive. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. very direct. And so, My know. mama can beat up your mama. Just uh, a word <laughs> of note, October 14th, Yeah. Uh, the mayor of Denver, Michael Hancock, has declared that breakfast burrito day. Oh, what I a move saint. that this be a national movement. I totally agree. And we all enjoy breakfast burritos October 14th. Who doesn't love breakfast? That's a Saturday, by the way. And burritos. Yeah. I, I make a killer breakfast burrito. Just mix it and uh, salsa it up. Potatoes? Some, some Do you put stuff. potatoes in there? No, because that's actually more work. Yeah, it's more work. It has to be wow. some convenience. You here. can make an egg in oh, yeah. a cup in the microwave in a min- two minutes. It's amazing. Put a little cheese in it. And then the key is... Just throw some salsa on it. Mm. Then it's a burrito. Yeah, you just mm. cover that up with some salsa. And then just throw it in a barf bag so that you've already got that handy when you need it. Wow. That's, wow. That becomes the lunch bag or the uh, breakfast wow. bag. That went a different direction. You're calling a, you brought up that one. So, word. yeah, put it on your calendar, breakfast burrito day. Okay, what day was that again? October 14th. Okay, Now, Siri? it's only in Denver. 
But um, and don't talk to Siri. No, Siri's gonna. No, Siri's just gonna screw it up. Yeah, I'm Siri gonna, can't do so, anything right. Wait, <laughs> if we're not in Denver, we can't have a breakfast burrito. No, you on can. October? I'm, okay. t- I'm saying let's make this a national movement. <laughs> I'm gonna have a Denver omelet in Salt Lake. There you on go. That same day in a burrito. Ask for a tortilla. <sighs> Yummy. I'm starving. <laughs> and finally, Kansas City's Alex Gordon broke Major League Baseball's season home run record with 12 days to spare, hitting the 5,694th long ball of the 2017 season Tuesday night. Hold it. Sweet. So he broke the record uh, because for the whole league. As a league. They the entire league is at 5,694 home runs. So really, he had very little to do with it. No, but he was the guy that hit He was it. the guy. He was now, the, big the significance of this is his home run... Off in Toronto, set the mark was set in 2000 at the height of the steroids era. Yeah, that was a that was right. That was a big era. So what this means is that uh, over all these years, they came back and started testing for home runs. Like the very next year, when they put the rules in, the home runs dropped significantly. People that were just killing the ball one year, the next year, ah. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, they have muscle strains and they can't quite, you know, get <laughs> yeah, the. Yeah, it's the, the weirdest thing. It's strange. So now they've. Brought back, uh, got those home runs back, and it seems like it's more based on skill rather than chemicals. I love it when ah. teams are no longer eligible for the playoffs, so they're scrambling for some sort of statistic yeah. that can help keep them relevant. Isn't that great? During the regular season. Well, it makes, and it makes you feel like, hey, we still got something to go for. We have the league home run title. And it says here there were 5,610 homer, homers last year, an average of 2.3 per game. This year's average is 2.5, entering Tuesday's action. Projections uh, for 6,139 for the season. That would be up 47% from 2014. Hmm. Wait. What? So in 2014, they had 4,186. Is it? There's 47% more home runs. Is this anything? So you you know how they alter the rules in basketball, like with the 24-second the, yeah. the clock? Is it 24 seconds? Yeah, yeah. That seems like a weird number. Um, or in football, you can't touch the quarterback, yeah. so they have more so, touchdowns. But they it's crazy. I, you can't alter rules that would make it easier to hit a home run unless you bring the walls in, right? Well, it depends on how you call balls and strikes. Uh, you know, do you oh, make, you tighten do you, up the if thing. You, if and you they tighten have to, the strikes over, yeah, the pitcher pitch. is throwing you a ball you can hit Maybe more often. That's Who what, knows? See, that's interesting because they, like, they can throttle the league. Is the ball juiced? That's the other thing. Do, are they the baseball, it with Are the manufacturers yeah. winding the baseballs tighter so there's more pop off the bat? Well, they've been having more, more uh, ball roids. Do you ever remember, oh, you know, for are balls. the balls full of flubber? Yes. Don't you, you remember unwrapping one of the uh, uh-huh. baseball and, you know, all the string? Yeah. yeah. And there's just like a little red ball in the center. Did you ever cut through the center of the ball? Guess what's inside the center of there? That. A little toy? No. Like a little army guy? Uh-uh. Nougat. <gasps> yeah. Oh, I knew there was a reason uh-huh. I like baseball so if you much. Keep, if you keep digging, you'll get to the nougat center. I thought you were going to say China there for a no, second. No, by the way, first time I've ever used the word nougat on the show. Really? Yep. Probably, by the way, the last time I'll use it. No. Nougat. Come on. Nougat. What's your favorite candy bar? Nougat. Mm, that didn't answer my question at all. Nougat-centered candy bars. So you've said it like six more times after you said you wouldn't say it anymore. I know. You know how you have an apple sound? I want you to get a sounder for nougat. Do you have a sounder for nougat? Nailed it. That's it. Folks, you're listening to the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. 
President Trump wants to cut foreign aid to other countries that are struggling. How would this affect us Americans, we as Americans? Will other groups step up to the plate and start helping where the government isn't? Here to speak with us today and to answer some of those questions is Dr. Susan Appy, who is a professor of public administration at Binghamton University. Uh, Dr. Appy, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Now, I did not know that there were so many, like, do-it-yourselfer, what do we call them, Uh, service organizations or or foreign aid helpers. Uh, Is this this kind of do-it-yourself world a new thing? Well, it's certainly growing. Um, yeah, the the term do-it-yourself aid groups, uh, DIY aid groups, um, is one way to call them, um, and that's what I used in, in in some of my research that I that I have published. What we're seeing is an increase. Um, so, for organizations uh, that are doing international work, in 1990, we saw about a thousand. Uh, of those in the U.S., and by 2010, there were about 11,000. Holy cow. And so, yes, we're, we're seeing a big increase, and there's lots of reasons for that, uh, one of which is, of course, just the current wave of globalization. It's easier to travel. It's easier um, to send and communicate abroad. Um, and then also just to start a nonprofit, there are lower barriers of entry. So your everyday person could essentially uh, be starting a nonprofit in any field, and certainly they are doing so in, in, in support of international causes. And you can, I guess, raise money easier with some of the new tools and, and you know, online methods? Absolutely. Um, online platforms uh, from Facebook to uh, cloud funding, um, absolutely. I think they're really tapping into some of those new, new platforms. It really is changing the way we think about doing development work and who should be doing development work. Yeah, I guess that's it. We used to think development work needed to be done by international organizations, by governments, large organizations, uh, even churches, I guess. But now it's just do it yourself. You, if you feel the need, if you have the contact, you can put something together. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree that much of the attention on foreign aid is given to what we call official development assistance that's through government-to-government, multilateral and bilateral donors, and even including some of the larger, more professionalized, what we call uh, non-governmental organizations or NGOs. And so I'm thinking the CARE Internationals, the Save the Children, the World Vision, who play a, a significant role in development aid, absolutely. Um, and there are healthy debates about the different modes, these different modes and channels of, of foreign aid. On one end, you do have the large-scale initiatives for global poverty eradication, and this has really been pushed by some key players like economist Jeffrey Sachs, to this other end of the spectrum where I'm finding much more interesting, actually, is uh, these small-scale DIY foreign aid groups. Now, again, it seems like there's still limited resources, um, I guess, available for charitable donation and gift giving. Is uh, it, when we when we grow from one thousand to eleven thousand of these kind of do-it-yourself aid groups, is it is it actually taking money from some of the more the larger NGOs that, um, that people might normally donate to these yeah, bigger organizations? That's a great question, and empirically I can't um, tell you exactly, but I have some hunches. Um, What I think is unique about these organizations is they're started um, by a founder, 
uh, from based on some sort of experience, whether it was traveling, a mission trip, uh, a Peace Corps stint. Um, they're started, and then they're really focused. Uh, their donor base and volunteer base is really based on that person's personal and professional network. And so this person, and often it is a single person, is getting people on board about international issues or a specific international issue who might not have previously had international causes on their radar. So I don't think it necessarily will take away from some of the other giving to some Mm. of the bigger organizations, which is certainly important, and they depend on donations. But I think it will just leverage um, contacts and personal connections and and, and get more people thinking globally. Um, And we know that Americans are generous to international causes. I mean, in just 2016, uh, Americans gave just over $22 billion to international causes, which is about 6% of all donations to organizations uh, who are registered with the international, wow. or, excuse me, with the Internal Revenue Service. Are they, so Americans are generous. Oh, yeah. And, and you can almost see like after, um, after Hurricane uh, Irma and after um, some of the and, and the Houston hurricane, you can see that, boy, immediately a lot of money can be raised. Um, are, are these smaller do-it-yourselfer groups – one of the downsides, it seems like, would be their their lack of connections, you know, governmental connections, their, maybe their lack of access, their lack of experience that some of these more established organizations have. Absolutely. And I think that's a, a question that needs some more probing. Um, you know, it gets at are these groups uh, actually effective? And – it's a really good question. Hmm. Development aid effectiveness generally is not easy to prove. Even some of the larger scale uh, projects and initiatives, perhaps specifically the larger scale development initiatives, evidence, real evidence is hard to come by. We've seen a push for what we call randomized control trials in the development field. And these, of course, are experiments where you have a group of people and you divide into two groups and you give one group the intervention, what you're trying to test, and, and the other group you don't, and it becomes the control group. And then you compare the results, right? Mm-hmm. And that would help get at if um, some of these development interventions, as we would call them, are effective. But even at some of the big institutions, such as World Bank or USAID, which is the U.S. government agency responsible for development programs, there's only a really small proportion of projects that are subject to these types of evaluations and these randomized control trials. So the idea that DIY aid groups are able and doing this type of kind of rigorous evaluation is unlikely. However, um, and and you mentioned a good point in terms of because they're a bit isolated uh, from some of these bigger international uh, organizations, is that a a bit of a liability? And I think looking at some of um, these organizations, they are taking a conscious effort to not only be more effective, but also to engage in shared learning and kind of learn the, the the trade, so to speak. I mean, these are people who generally have day jobs, right? Yeah, right. They are doing this on top of their day jobs. These are professionals. They're usually um, they usually have even post um, postgraduate education, um, and they're working full time often. 
Yeah. And then, um, and then also learning how to do international development and manage a nonprofit organization, mm. right? Yeah, I mean, it's it, again. I, I I look at the effectiveness of it, and I guess on a global scale, people will question it. But on a local scale, when they you know they went in and built a, a, a some method of a well or getting some method of clean water into. A, a town or a community, they're probably they know they're succeeding. They drilled the well. They've got the water flowing, but th- there's also systemic things that can happen the minute you get into some of these issues. And um, again, we're speaking with Dr. Susan Appy, a professor of public administration at Binghamton University, and we're talking about her article: "Will Trump's cuts in, uh, inspire more do-it-yourself foreign aid?" Um, Susan, when you look at it, just maybe give us some examples of what what some of these do-it-yourselfer uh, aid groups are doing. What are they actually – how are they helping on the ground? Yeah, let me give you some examples. I had the pleasure this summer of talking to over 40, doing about 40 interviews of these organizations. Mm. And so I have a good good sampling of them. One example is an organization called iThirst International, which is based – in Elmira Heights, which is in central New York State. And this organization seeks to bring access to clean water uh, in the developing world in lots of contexts through water filtration, pump repair, and well drilling. And this was started by upstate New Yorkers, business owners, David and Cynthia Pearson. And they own a remodeling company, and they happen to work a lot with gutters and water. And so they have this interest uh, for water. And they both grew up as missionary kids in Central America. And then for some time, they worked with nonprofits doing water activities in in various contexts and then started in 2009 iThirst. And they have delivered water filters and train teams in several countries from Uganda to Haiti to Nepal to the Philippines, right? And so that's one example. Another example, which has a very different story, is called Building Mines in South Sudan. And this is an organization just outside of Rochester, New York, and it is dedicated to providing educational opportunities to children in the Republic of South Sudan specifically. It builds primary schools and provides teacher training and really wants to advance its mission in promoting girls' education. And this was started by Sebastian and Maton, who are cousins who uh, were born in Sudan and because of the conflict needed to, as young boys, go to Ethiopia and then, uh, and then Kenya in refugee camps. And then in 2012, or excuse me, 2001 actually, they were selected as two of the 3,800 young, young Sudanese who would resettle in, in the U.S. And hmm. they're, they're called, um, you might have heard of the term lost boys of Sudan. Yeah. And so they came... They resettled in upstate New York in 2001, and then several years later in 2007, they were able to go back to what was then uh, or what was going to become South Sudan um, and reunited with their families after 18 years. They hadn't seen their families. And they came back with really a passion, came back to upstate New York with a passion to do something for uh, their, their, their village, and they committed themselves to building a school, to provide basic education, and then Building Minds was created and has gotten enormous support from um, some of their contacts and, and Rochester residents. They have a really solid board who is absolutely committed. And so you see kind of the different ways in which people kind of stumble across this work, right? Um, and they're doing work in 
the developing um, regions, Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean, Asia. And some of them are focused on a very specific location, like building mines in South Sudan. They're very hyper-focused on one village there. And then others focus more on a service, like iThirst International is about water and really does kind of float around different regions with those projects. And as I have alluded to some of the program areas, they generally work, what we have found across the um, organizations, at least in upstate New York, is they're working in education, water and sanitation, female empowerment, and environmental issues. Hmm. And sometimes a con combination of those, but those are generally um, some of the programmatic areas we're seeing. Man, it's really – it is amazing that um, – because like the, Su the, the Sudanese, you can see that they've, they've been on the ground. They understand what's going on. They then can come over and really take advantage of some of the, some of the methods of organizing and raising money and then go back. I guess that's the key. A lot of these people have, because of globalization, have made it out to these other areas of the world – maybe even learned languages, learned the cultures more and, and are impacted. I love the idea that people that are so connected to the issue are so involved, where sometimes you feel like with some charities or even governments just throwing money at issues that maybe it may not trickle down to the people that know what to do with the money. Absolutely. And this is one of um, something that we hear time and time when we're talking to some of these founders, board members, and volunteers, is when I ask them, you know, what not only motivates you, but how do you motivate other people to get on board by either going on trips with you and or providing uh, donations of time, goods, and money? And they, you know, they simply say, we tell our story, hmm. and we, we convince them, and they know that we know exactly where the money's going generally 100% of all the donations are going directly to the projects on the ground, right? Their overhead is extraordinarily low. They're paying for postage, maybe some bank fees, maybe keeping up a website. And those costs, which tend to be of their operating budget, you know, well less than 3%, generally are absorbed by the board members mm. and their donations. So yeah. any external donor can feel really confident that 100% of their money, and that's something that um, donors care about. And even when these founders understand that the bigger organizations need overhead, overhead is a reality for organizations, just the model of this way of doing development aid essentially gets around that. It is just so grassroots, small scale, that they really um, are able to get people on board um, because of that. Because it's going, like you said, exactly on the ground to where, it, where, where they say it's going. Absolutely. We're speaking with Dr. Susan Appy, who is a professor of public administration at Binghamton University, about her article um, that, that really is focusing on do-it-yourself foreign aid groups and organizations. We'll continue the discussion. Find out what uh, future you know, governmental changes with President Trump's policies on foreign aid cuts if that will impact. Also, what's the future of this? Do we see more and more of these coming up, or have we reached a plateau in uh, do-it-yourself foreign aid? This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
We are speaking with Dr. Susan Appy on the phone. She's a professor of public administration at Binghamton University, and we're talking about do-it-yourself foreign aid organizations, small kind of homegrown, homespun foreign aid opportunities that are that are you know peaking up all over the country. About eleven thousand as of twenty ten. About eleven thousand uh, organizations. So. Undoubtedly more now. And uh, these are just small, maybe charities, about $45,000, maybe thirty dollars to $45,000 on average that are – that would then go to different parts of the world and and bring aid, bring water, bring uh, you know hygiene services, uh, empowering of women, sanitation issues. Um, to change the world, and it's to me, it's a, it's an incredibly hopeful and inspiring um, program. I think, and, and just movement of 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 love of charity. Uh, Susan, thank you again for being with us. Absolutely, happy to be here, Matt. I guess the trend we're calling altruism from afar is what it's been known as. Do you is there do you see a downside to it? Is there is there a downside to so many just do-it-yourselfers going out there? Uh, because in the end, they're doing good. I mean, they're not maybe as organized or they may not be sharing best practices or they may be duplicating services. But is there a downside to this? Yeah, and I think you're hitting on what we need to know more of. Um, there's certainly a learning curve, and I think that can be a challenge. I think an idea and a passion which is exactly how many of these organizations start, um, can only take you so far when you're dealing with really complex development issues, not to mention just the challenges, even with all of the new platforms, the distance challenge becomes still, still a challenge. And I, and I, think, um, I, I think that's the greatest challenge. I think there's still a lot of opportunities for organizations to tap into some um, shared learning and organizational learning, and I think there's uh, founders that are very open to that and founders that are doing it. Again, you know, this is very part-time, right, because they're working full-time, but they're trying to build their capacity. They might not want to professionalize as a large professional nonprofit organization, but they are aware that they want to build their capacity in order to serve their mission better, right? Yeah. Um, and and they really do that um, – really believing that it is, they really present an alternative to some of the the problems that we know related to the bigger international development agents, or industry rather. Um, you know, the larger professionalized international non-governmental organizations or NGOs have been watched more carefully in the media and in academic literature since their real boom in the 1980s and 1990s, again, when, um, when the, the, this current wave of globalization um, hit winds. Um, and even development at that scale, large and professionalized, there's a long list of criticisms questioning its effectiveness, yeah. right? Um, but these DIY aid groups really present an alternative, and they and – they, understand that um, and they can speak of that, that they're not, they are entering a community and often staying for, for decades and building those relationships with a single hyper-focused project. Hmm. And so they really see themselves as an alternative. But in terms of challenges, absolutely there are challenges, not only related to are they working in isolation and is that a weakness or could it be really a strength? And then also I'll just mention the issue of um, 
you know, what happens when the founder um, yeah. moves is on. tired or yeah, yeah. gets sick. And or, that's a major issue right. with a lot of nonprofits working in a lot of different uh, policy areas. But is there a plan? And because it's so founder-focused, there's always a story. Can they continue with that story but move on in terms of leadership? And mm. I think that's going to be a, a big question for a lot of these organizations. Yeah, and man, maybe they don't have the longevity that others did, but they have twice the energy or right. power or emotion about it. Um, as we wrap up, Susan, what uh, what would you recommend to – just the average Joe that maybe has traveled abroad and found uh, some area of interest where they, they would love to go maybe do a little do-it-yourself foreign aid service work. Uh, any suggestions for how they should begin, what they should do, some do's, some don'ts? Yeah, that's a, um, a great question, actually. Um, I would encourage folks to um, explore locally where they live what types of, of these smaller uh, nonprofits are, are happening. Um, and they're often connected. Uh, they do have some relations sometimes to churches, sometimes to rotary clubs, um, sometimes to other types of um, volunteer groups. Um, but see if there is international activity uh, going on locally. And I think people will be really surprised because I know I was when I kind of started this journey. Um, it was to try to incorporate some smaller international NGOs into an international NGO class I was teaching. And I just thought, might there be some near me in upstate New York? And then um, I discovered kind of this whole subset of dynamic um, mm. nonprofit organizations doing this kind of work. And so I would um, perhaps explore so you can kind of see what's going on locally. Um, I'd also recommends, and I hope this is okay for me to yeah. give a plug to this book that I just read, that I think is really consistent with some of the values of the DIY aid, uh, foreign aid movement or, or counter movement to foreign aid. And it's called Smart Risks, How Small Grants Are Helping to Solve Some of the World's Biggest Problems. And it's edited by um, Jennifer Letfer and uh, Tanya Cothran, and both of whom have lots of years of experience in, in the aid industry, in the aid field. And it really presents a welcome take, take on how we can do aid better. Um, they argue that we need, of course, to start supporting local on-the-ground grassroots activity in the context in which we're doing aid. And that's something we've said for a long time. But they actually present um, really good examples hmm. and, and also lessons learned of, of things they needed to do differently. I mean, that's the key, though, really, Susan, is the learning. And it sounds like with books like that, with uh, educators like yourself, uh, and, and just learning and, and, and seeing what the best practices are, all of us can get more involved and actually get more involved in our way. Dr. Susan Appy, thank you so much. Again, Susan is a professor of public administration at Binghamton University, helping us be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143.
Welcome back, friends. You know, our student producer, Leanna Tan, took four months off from the show during the summer to complete an internship in New York City and trips to Hawaii, Canada, Turkey, and Greece. She's back now with a tangent that highlights some of the best moments and odd situations that marked her summer. Well, hello again. Feels good to be back. Did you miss me? It's been a long four months of summer travel for me. Welcome back. But I brought back lots of stuff to talk about. I felt like this summer I was able to go out and see the world and experience so many new things. I want to tell you guys all about them. So, over these next few days, I'll be doing a summer throwback series to give you the inside scoop on my summer adventures. There's an endless amount of things I could talk about from my journeys, but to start off, I'll brief you on 10 things I did this summer that I've never done before. Number one. Jumping in the ocean with my clothes on. This is taking you way back to April when my summer began, a few weeks early in the clear blue waters of Hawaii. I'd retreated to the island to visit my family, and we spent a day frolicking in the windy jungle trees and eating coconut and pineapple pieces from street vendors. And then it was so hot, we felt like it would just be a waste not to take a dip in the ocean to finish off a wonderful day. Number two, riding in a taxi. Taxi! Don't ask why, but this has always been on my bucket list since I was a child. I guess it just seemed like something grown-ups did on TV. Well, I got my chance this summer in the exotic land of New York City when you're running late to a comedy gig. So my bike was stolen. I was going to report it to the police, but uh, I was too tired. (laughs) Get it? That's a funny joke, isn't it? Yeah, it wasn't all that glamorous. You pay 15 bucks to ride down the street in the back of a stuffy car with ripped seats and molding coffee stains. That $15 could have bought me two weeks' worth of gas back home. Number three, eating an authentic Philly cheesesteak. Yummy! My friend and I took a ride in a pretty sketchy bus from Chinatown all the way to the great land of Philadelphia. Yo, Adrian! Took a recommendation from some random guy at the park and then somehow found ourselves in the slums of Philly in a long line of cat-calling men uh, yo, Adrian. waiting for the biggest, greasiest, yummiest cheesesteak I've ever had. Yummy. And while we're on the subject of food, I'll mention number four, eating authentic clam chowder in Boston. And number five, being in the front lines of a country fair in Idaho selling platter-sized scones. Let me tell you, I've never seen so many people flock for a massive oil-drenched piece of dough. I'm still trying to overcome the guilt of being a major contributor in the recent rapid increase of diabetes in Idaho. Number six, being the designated driver. Anyone can tell you, if there's a group of two or more people with me in it, I am the last person chosen to be the driver. AKA, a group of us really wanted to go on a road trip to New Jersey Six Flags, and I was the only one allowed to drive the car. My life may have flashed before my eyes navigating through New York traffic, and the brakes may have given out a couple times on the freeway. But in the end, we made it to the great adventure, and now I guess you could say I'm invincible. Number seven, going on a road trip with just me and my grandma. This summer was the first time I've taken my own time to actually go out and visit my family on the East Coast. So one day, my grandma treated me to a short road trip across the border to Canada for lunch. Doesn't sound far, but trust me, it was a different world down the road. I thought it would be fun to disguise myself as a little French girl, but 
I guess that semester I sat in the back of a French 101 class in college just didn't cut it. My cover was blown the minute I opened my mouth. Number eight. Hand-grinding peppercorns in the back of a pickup truck at a country concert. This was just one of the many countryside adventures I had in Vermont. When my cousin mentioned tailgating at a concert, I was picturing a hot dog and potato chips. But he whipped out a full-on, like, four-course meal with steak, grilled veggies, filleted fish, and all-natural spring water. But I'll just say, hand-grinding salt and pepper in the back of a pickup truck at a country concert looks pretty suspicious. Number 9. Antique Shopping I discovered this in Turkey this summer, and I can't believe what I've been missing out on my entire life! We searched the bazaars in Turkey for the coolest, best-quality antique stores for rugs and frames and jewelry. It's like yard sailing to a whole new level. <sighs> my mind has been opened to a new favorite hobby. And finally, number 10. Meeting an ex-mariachi singer priest in Greece. There were so many things that happened in Greece this summer, but this was definitely a first, and probably a last. This guy was over six feet tall, wore all black, had left his mariachi band to move to Europe and devote himself to God, learn like six languages, lead some amazing refugee relief efforts, and then, after sharing his story over a platter of fish and potatoes with us, he sped off on his motorcycle with his long blonde locks waving in the wind. Don't know if I'll ever find a priest quite like him again. So, as you can tell, it's been one wild summer. I hope you all had summers full of adventure and success, too. Let's bring on tomorrow and indulge in the memories of yesterday. Well, I'm Lana Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome back to the program. Dr. Matt here with Terry South, Jeff Simpson. The gang is gathered. We're doing what we can to give you a leg up in life. Hopefully help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier lives. And today, by the way, uh, we are going to be talking with a game, uh, like a, a game designer, a game creator. Not just a gamer, not just someone that plays games, but a professor that teaches uh, basically how to design computers, uh, computerized games. And he's mm. going to teach us that there are amazing, amazing lessons in life in the games. Can we design like a sleeping game? No. Oh, I would I need, love that. Man, I need the sleeping game. I actually play it every afternoon. Really? Mm-hmm. On purpose? No. Okay. The, the game is where I pretend like I'm not sleeping, but my body pretends like it is. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a great it's a it should be in every acting class. How to not bob your head, how to keep your mouth closed. How, how to not to, swear in your sleep, how to keep your eyes open <laughs> when you're sleeping. You know how hard it is to keep your eyes open while you're asleep? Some would say it's impossible. I've it's seen not. it done though. Yeah, totally. It's very scary. Mm-hmm. You just have to keep your eyes hydrated. It's awkward. We'll get to that fun uh, straight ahead. Plus, um, we'll get updates on what's going on with Hurricane Maria. No one solves a problem like Maria. Mm, Actually. That doesn't seem to fit. Hmm. Maria is the problem. Yeah. How do you solve a problem like Maria? That's a great, that's a better way to put it. How do you solve it? You don't. 
You just sit there, and apparently, like they are in Puerto Rico, they got to just take it. A level four, category four hurricane. And it's, I think, right now passing over. It's moving very slowly, so it's just sort of parked over uh, the top. Just what they needed. It'll move on. Well, yeah. It might take the islands. Well. Oof. That makes you then think, hey, it's so much better to be on land. And then you hear about Mexico. Yeah. Earthquake, 7.1. Not better. No. Not better. Where are you safe anymore? <gasps> Asia. No, they have North Korea, Rocket Man. Right. Monsoons. Mm-hmm. Monsoons. All kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. But I, every, every area of the world has its problems. Yeah. They have Pokemon. Yeah. Go. They had a rally. It was in San Jose. I saw over the weekend a big Pokemon party. The city sponsored it. And like all these, I like these many people are still playing Pokemon. Do they not Go? know that Pokemon Go is it's it's no, gone? It's gone. That's it's, a so last summer thing. So last summer. I mean, if you're going to try to be hip and cool with your community, try to at least be up to date. Right. right? Don't play a game that's no longer in vogue. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I was showing you the new hotness. Yeah. Is these uh, new apps that uh, came out yesterday where you can place furniture in your room. You know what? I don't like this new app because all I see you doing is walking around like you used to with Pokemon. Yeah, yeah. I used to do that here. But now you're placing furniture in our studio. I need to know if that couch is going to work. In the studio? Do you want a couch in here? I would love a couch in here. I got to see if it'll fit. What colors go well with the kind of dingy sort of industrialized theme in here? Yeah. Everything's brown. Did you notice that? Yeah. All right. Well, it's not brown. It's they're shades of earth tones. Right. It's kind of office drab. See, this is this is why we know you're not a decorator. You're yeah. calling it brown and office drab, and it's really taupe. Oh, excuse me. And you know, nature tones. Nature tones. Mm-hmm. Speaking of nature tones, or are they just trying to hide the dirt? Yeah, <laughs> that's probably what they're trying to do. <laughs> Speaking of nature tones, it is pepperoni pizza day. My kid. You want to be the coolest person at work? Roll in with a pepperoni pizza yeah, this morning? Yeah, uh, This is the Gimme Pizza song. Mary-Kate and Ashley, Ashley Olsen. By the way, just for fun, let's all guess how many views this has on YouTube. Way more than it should. Absolutely. There are various versions of this. There's like the really slow version, and there's the scary version of this song. Of the Gimme Pizza song? I think song? it's scary enough, to 4. be honest. 4.5 million views. It's been up since 2008, so. Y- y- you know what? You put something up since 2008 and tell me if it would get 4.5 million views. No, of course not. Because you're not pizza. Right. Or Mary Kate and Ashley. The pizza kids don't (laughs) even have a million views yet. Right. When do you think Mary Kate and Ashley had their last pizza? One of them hasn't eaten in decades, so we'll see. Yeah. I think they sniff pizza, and that's that's, they get about five calories per day on that. Can we just get very real about pizza for a minute? Go ahead. There is one bite of pizza Mm. that is it just always. It, it can't be matched, I don't think, by any other meal. When you're Which one? Plowing the, through the crust? The, the first bite oh. of that perfect corner triangle end piece. Okay. The first bite. Yeah. When you have smelled it in the car gotcha. all the drive home. Oh, yeah, yeah. You carry it in. You that can feel the heat. Pizza mm. looks nasty, by the way. Well, don't look at it. 
Um, well, it's pizza from 2008. And you pull that pizza up and the, the stringy cheese and then just yum, that first bite. Okay. Heaven. That. Don't the, you like all the bites or is that? The, that bite is the bite of uh, all bites. Okay. Mm. That bite bites. But what if you have like a stuffed crust? Oh, yeah. Then that's great. Did you hear that lady loves yeah. that first bite yeah. of pizza? She loves it. Our laugher. Extra enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, if you have a stuffed crust yeah. on your pizza, then maybe the last bite is better because it's... But if you have a stuffed crust, do you actually stop? I mean, do you eat that last or do you just devour I've, the I've crust? I've seen people turn the pizza uh-huh. around totally. and take that's, the crust first. That's just sacrilege. Yeah. So some might argue that the best slice of pizza is the one after you've already reached your limit oh. and you're like pushing it over the line. And your leg is numb. That piece that you'll regret in about 10, 20 minutes because yeah. you're like, oh. No, but that, that one you already know you're, you're on the edge. But there's some sort of satisfaction that comes with being defiant, like well, defying what your body is trying to tell you. Oh, you're telling me I'm full? No, I'm yeah. going to prove you wrong. But when your wife is like <laughs> charging up the defibrillator, <laughs> when she's like, "Hunt, what, just hold off on that piece one more minute. I just, we're, we're almost charged here. I love getting the 14-inch pizza. We eat half of it, and I go, I'm going to finish this, all right? Because I'm not a quitter. Any objections? All right, good. I I don't. don't. Do you love, though, there's nothing better, too, than going to bed knowing that you have pizza in the fridge? Oh, yeah. For breakfast. It is the breakfast of champions. It's never as good after you you heat it up, but it's either good like right when you you said right when you get it out of the box or letting Mm. it sit on the counter for an hour. Then it's really good. Mm. It's that, that extra bacteria. It's good for you. Yeah. Oh, and the and the clotted cheese. <laughs> Once it's like coagulated clotted. into a harder cheese specimen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so now we're hungry. I know where I'm going for lunch. Home? No, I'm going to get a pizza. Oh, okay. I don't actually know where to get a pizza down here. Anyway, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Take it up a notch. Find out what's going on. Hurricane Maria made landfall in Puerto Rico as a Category 4 storm Wednesday morning. So this morning, National Hurricane Center reports, while the storm's maximum sustained winds dropped to 150 miles per hour by 8 a.m. Eastern, it still threatened to do severe damage to the U.S. territory. Category 4 storm has not hit the island since 1932. Storm surge is predicted to be 6 to 9 feet in coastal Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Rainfall totals for Puerto Rico are projected 12 to 18 inches, with as much as 25 inches in isolated areas. Wow. Maria's forecast to cross Puerto Rico Wednesday, then approach the Dominican Republic, where conditions will deteriorate Wednesday. It looks on the maps that it might just head just east of Dominican and then make its way out to the ocean. <sighs> but uh, but then does it go out to the ocean and, like, recharge and then automatically well, come back to if, the U.S.? If, if the water's warm... Uh, East of Florida, it will, and then it just turns north, and it doesn't. I don't know if it continues on north, or does it kind of curve back to the U.S. or what? What it does? Someday so. they just need to curve back to Europe. Yeah, I mean, if we go want back this fair, but the, I guess the waters are too cold. <laughs> yeah, it kind of darn it kills them there. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham on Tuesday painted a stark dichotomy between America's healthcare prospects and as he continued rally support for his Graham Cassidy bill. Here are the choices for America, socialism or federalism, Graham said. He warned that his Obamacare repeal bill is the only process available to stop our march towards socialism. 
which is mm. apparently his word for Bernie Sanders' single-payer health care bill. Okay. Word has it the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell remains noncommittal about whether the bill will come <laughs> to the floor for a vote by September 30th, Republicans' deadline for passing the bill with a simple majority vote. Yeah. Afterwards, they'll have to actually cooperate with Democrats. And I know nothing. He's noncommittal. Colonel Schultz. Is that his name? Sergeant yeah. Schultz. I love the uh, hyperbole. Yeah. Our march towards socialism. Yeah. Well, yeah, we, we've studied on the show yeah. a lot of health care options. We'll probably end up with, um, uh, what do they call it? It's not single payer. There will be a single payer option. It'd be the, the governmental option. option. So you have this so it'll be one separate of 10 option. options. One will be the so governmental it, option. Yeah, and people complain like, well, we don't want the government competing against private industry. And it's like, well, you know, the post office. Right. They try to tell you they're not government, but they're right. government. Yeah. And they're competing. And, we're al- be and like it's that. already kind of competing, right? I yeah. mean, you're, and you're taxed and have to go do it. So it's kind of a mandatory so they'll give government's us this forcing the hand. Governmental option for insurance. Maybe that's where this is headed. Yeah. I don't know. And again, remember on the show, we talked about the fact that Canada and a lot of other countries have this and their health care is higher and better than the United States healthcare. In some cases. They have their problems. Oh, sure. So do we. But I don't know if their their Wrong. system fixes our problem. Well, depends what guests you listen to. That's right. A lot of them are very convincing. Mm-hmm. Lawmakers on both sides are arguing that something needs to be done in order to better track spending on digital political ads in light of recent revelations that Russian groups purchased Facebook ads around 2016, around the 2016 election. Their efforts are being reinforced by the Federal Election Commission, which unanimously decided to reopen the written comment period on what sorts of disclaimers Internet advertising should have. It's the first time the FEC has taken action on this issue in over 10 years. Some political ad buyers, most of whom agree that something needs to be done, but many worry that lawmakers and regulators are in a rush to fix a complicated 21st century problem with 20th century tactics. Ooh. They don't understand how it works. So it says roughly $450 million was spent on Facebook during the 2016 general election, $350 million on Google ads, according to uh, some data. That number is only expected to increase as audiences migrate their attention to digital and mobile down hmm. the road. Do you think we'd be talking, because I think this is great, that they're talking about other countries advertising on on Google and Facebook uh, to alter the election. Would we be talking about that if Hillary Clinton won? No. Like, because this is an issue that is, it supersedes well, Trump and it supersedes. Obama was trying to talk about it before. Yeah. And like Mitch McConnell said that you bring this up, we're going to, you know, right. yell at you and but, call, but you know, if, claim if Hillary, you're doing this stuff. But if Hillary won, hmm. would we be investigating Google and Facebook's advertising practices with know. Russia? I, I no, doubt no it. Idea. I would doubt nope. it. Because this, the, it's, it's got energy. People like the, the Russia investigation, and if, sure. it, it goes the, if it goes there too, that's good. That's probably good for everybody. I and think a is. lot of things would be different had Hillary been elected. I think we, we would have endless uh, Jason Chaffetz-led inquiries into yeah. things that don't oh, really yeah. matter. And but. we wouldn't have Rocket Man. Yeah. SNL wouldn't have won all those Emmys. Absolutely, right? SNL would probably be off the air. <laughs> They'd have nothing. Anyway. Finally, America is floundering in its intense rivalry with Europe to grow the biggest pumpkin in the world. 
<laughs> this from the Smithsonian. While the orange fruit is a New World native, farmers in Belgium, Switzerland, and Britain are approaching the benchmark of growing a 3,000-pound pumpkin. While America lags behind, we're still in the uh, mid-2000s when it comes to weight. Really? America used to reign in the pumpkin department specifically because the plants adore the ideal environment of New England. Wow. You have the summer days in the mid-80s yeah. and bonus light sun hours throughout the growing season. Uh, it doesn't turn super cold quicks, and you can just the, – the pumpkins grow immensely in the fall. However, Europe is using high-tech greenhouses with heating and air conditioning, irrigation, irrigation systems, automatic fertilization, and other frills allowing growers to mimic and in the last few seasons maybe even improve on a New England-like climate. So they're cheating. Cheaters. Cheaters Which, never prosper. So instead of just growing it out in the pumpkin patch. Yeah. And paying special care. Like Charlie Brown did. Right. They're they're manufacturing <laughs> gigantic pumpkins that you could possibly carve out and make boats out of. There's videos on YouTube where people have done that. Did you get emotional because yeah. you were a little sentimental there? Yeah. Right then I had a flashback to my childhood days watching Charlie Brown grow the great pumpkin. The great pumpkin. Is that what it was? Hmm. Those were the days. And so, yeah. now we've got like these Europeans we cheating. Need a, we need a commission. Something yeah. needs to be done to stop the Europeans the from growing pumpkin massive pumpkins. Commission. They're cheating. You know what? Who cares? <laughs> I'm just saying. They're cheating. We have hurricanes, we have earthquakes, and we have pumpkin contest cheaters. Yeah. But guess what's going to happen? We're going to continue to lose to Europe because they're basically using the equivalent of steroids yeah. as they're, they're cheating at the competition. And here's the reality of the whole thing. What that means is at the very end of the season when snow starts to land mm. on the on our wonderful shores, they will be crushing enormous pumpkins to scatter as fertilizer on their ground. Will right. they be smashing pumpkins? No. That's a wonderful band. But I bet smashing pumpkins are from there too. Are no, they from they're, from, they're from here. Okay, good. See? They're from Utah? No, like Chicago. Oh, I see. see? That's LA it. So no matter what happens, we've got smashing pumpkins. But they, again, in the end, all of these pumpkins get crushed, and all it means is they have more waste. Ha ha! And fatbergs. But they have the trophy. Biggest pumpkin. Yeah. And for the 17 people mm -hmm. that really care about that. They're wrong. You're right. It's got it's exactly. got to hurt though. This is a huge situation. I think we should put together a you know what blue ribbon commission. Send those pumpkins and make pumpkin pie, oh, pumpkin spa, spice lattes or whatever. No, no, and send them all down to the Caribbean. Hmm. Float that boat. Float that pumpkin boat. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, speaking of fat bergs. Yeah, there's a, a new burger joint oh, uh -huh. that I wanted to tell you okay. about. Yeah, please. So uh, it's in uh, Switzerland. Mm -hmm. The Swiss supermarket chain uh, Coop is selling burgers and meatballs made from insects. Ugh. Do you think you could do that? No. So let me tell you a little bit more about it. It's being billed as a legal first in Europe, a continent more accustomed to steak, sausage, poultry, and fish as a source of protein. The goal is to convince leery consumers to try a nutritious, if unusual, food that preserves the planet's resources, mm. Coop says. About one-third of the burger is mealworm larvae. 
Are you with me so far? Yeah, that's not good. For now, only seven of Coop's nearly 2,500 stores in Switzerland are selling the burgers, but the chain says the insect products have been flying off shelves during their limited rollout, probably because they're still alive when they're on the shelves. Right, right. That's why they're flying off. Uh, uh, And a broader launch is planned by year's end. Insect promoters. Yeah. I didn't know there was such a thing. Oh, yeah, they're huge. <laughs> Don King, I think Don King was an insect. We're going to get you a fight against the cockroach. <laughs> uh, they say Switzerland isn't the first European country to allow retail sales, just the first to have those sales so clearly authorized. Hmm. A change in Swiss law in May allows the sale of three types of insects mealworm larvae, okay. house crickets, <laughs> and migratory locusts. Why? 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 Well, you know all those people that put uh, potato chips or Doritos on their burgers or their sandwich to make it crunchier? Yeah. Now they don't have to. Uh, Anyway, it's pepperoni pizza day. And it's being ruined by the Swiss, I don't know, gross burger company. You know, it. look on the bright side. Yeah. It could be worse. How? You could be eating a rat burger. Mm. Enjoying that sandwich? Hey, where did you come from? I moseyed on over here when I noticed your mom went to the restroom. Say, that sure looks good. Enjoying it? There's something in it. I can't quite put my finger on it. That something is called radical ounces of dactyldemic experimental nectomic tastiness. Hey, wait, isn't that an acronym for rodent? (laughs) <laughs> Where'd you learn such a big word, son? I'm a girl. Of course you are, Susie. My name is... Radical ounces of dactyldemic experimental nectomic tastiness, or to use your word, rodent, is the newest product from Cosi Carne. The genus Nectomus is fed a strict diet of donated chicken parts and injected with serums with names this high school dropout can't pronounce and that you wouldn't find all that interesting anyway. Then, after a brief trip to Uncle Butch, the Nectomus is processed with care in an occasionally USDA-supervised facility before he's shipped directly to restaurants all over the Midwest. I think I'm gonna be sick. Oh, it's perfectly natural and quite safe. Just ask Dr. Tribbiani. I highly recommend radical ounces of dactyldemic experimental nectomic tastiness for all diets. I'm pretty sure that was just your voice dubbed over Dr. Tribbiani's. <laughs> what are you, my lawyer? Now, if you're not sure whether it's safe to eat, just remember this saying. If you sense a foreign crunch, it'll make for a great lunch. Hey, get away from my daughter. Whoops, gotta go. Rodent, the tasty new product from Cosi Carne. Games are at the center of our social lives. We play video games with our friends, card games in casinos, board games on the weekends, and games in arcades. We play games because they're fun, but what does fun really mean? According to our next guest, Ian Bogost, an author and game designer, games are fun because they have limitations. Not only are games filled with rules and boundaries, 
But all areas of our lives are filled with limitations as well. And if limitations help us to have fun while playing games, shouldn't we then be able to have more fun in our lives when we uh, run into some rules, some boundaries, some limitations as well. Ian, uh, Dr. Ian Bogos joins us. He is a professor of interactive computing at Georgia Institute of Technology. Ian, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, thanks so much for having me. What a, what a great um, you know, theory here, right? You, you go put together digital games and understand the rules and the themes behind the games that make them fun. And what you're saying, I guess, in your, in your book, uh, in your new book, is that these games, with their limitations, with some uses of boredom, there are some secrets that actually can be applied to our everyday lives. Yeah, that, right. I mean, you know, I think when we think about play and, and we think about fun, and we, these, are, these are things we want to do. We, we seek them out. Uh, people desire them. Um, and we tend to characterize those activities as the opposite of work and duty and obligation, right? Play is the thing that you get to do in most people's minds, and work is the thing that you, that you have to do. Um, and the the problem with thinking that way is that it means there's a whole massive part of our lives that we kind of exclude from the very get-go from being connectable to, to the hmm. pleasure of, of, of fun. And, and so if we can reclaim that, uh, not by like turning it into a game, you know, in these, these kind of cloying ways that you sometimes hear about or gold stars or, you know, points at work or what have you, yeah. but by recognizing the aspects of everything that are playful, that you can extract fun from, um, then we'll have much more content uh, existences. So fun is really, it's subjective. It's, it's how you frame it. It's what you make it. Fun is one of these words that, you know, people use it as if they know what they're saying. Uh, but I have a challenge that I sometimes like to issue to people that the next time they find themselves saying that something's fun or I had fun or did you have fun, or using this word fun, if you stop yourself and say, wait, like, what am, what am I actually saying or what am I actually asking? Really, you almost don't know. Uh, I think that fun has become a, a kind of placeholder. It's, it's like... Uh, when you walk into a shop and, and the shopkeeper says, hey, how are you? And you say, I'm fine, how are you? And you're, yeah. you're just exchanging pleasantries, and it's, it's functional language. So fun is a bit like that. It's like, it's like a way of saying yeah, everything's okay, you know, things went according to plan, um, uh, I, I had a decent enough time that there's nothing worth remarking about. <laughs> it's almost like we use that instead of digging deeper and asking, well, what really happened and what was, what was pleasurable about it or what was, you know, delightful about it. So to me, the, the, what fun means, what we, what, we, what we mean in our hearts when we use this word, even if we don't know it in our heads, is that um, in a fun experience, you find something new that you haven't seen before. And it's especially fun, especially pleasurable in that way we call fun, when you find something new in something that you've been through a million times, in something that, that's, that's so familiar that it feels impossible that you could ever find something new in it. It, it. So if you think about, you know, ordinary games, board games, video games, card games, that sensation you have after, you know, a thousand tries at that Candy Crush board or, or when, you get a, when you get dealt a particularly good hand of, of cards or, or, or when, you, you know, you're a, you're a kid and you go down the, 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 the slide in just the exact way you were hoping to, the reason that's fun is, is because the repetition around it has produced this experience of, of the patterns and the constraints and limitations of the experience. And then you, know, you discovered some, some new way of going about it or you accomplished something that you hadn't done before. 
Powerful. Is is there um, – does fun, I guess, and maybe the maybe taking it – is fun taking it to a new level too? Is it making it harder? Do we need it to be – like I know in psychological – like positive psychology, they talk about the fact that you need sometimes it to be a little more challenging. And, and when it's challenging, it's the challenging that actually takes something to a different level that might make it more pleasurable. Yeah, there's this, there's this argument that, you know, that, that people, um, they, they seek out a challenge that's sort of commensurate with their abilities and a little bit beyond them. And when something isn't, isn't challenging enough, it's hard to make it pleasurable. It's hard to have fun at it. Uh, the the most I don't know the simplest example of this is that you know a little kid can play a game like tic tac toe and find pleasure in it because <laughs> they don't know how the system works, but when an adult plays, uh, you you know what all the outcomes are, can be and yeah. it's not that it's not that interesting. But if you think about that example, the way that you make it fun again for yourself as an adult is that you you find some new way of going about it. So so playing tic-tac-toe with your own young child is pleasurable because now you're having a, a connection with this with this other person and showing them something that you already know and taking delight in what they don't. But you can also redesign that game or expand it to make it more challenging and to increase the possibility of, of finding that novelty that is that is fun through play. So if you do like a three-dimensional tic-tac-toe board um, where you have, you know, the ability to go down three levels in space rather than just across, then it's harder to keep it all in your head. And especially if you move the whole thing into your head, some people play like mind tic-tac-toe with other people mm. where you know, they, they have different boards and they number the, the, the positions. So those kinds of techniques, which are somewhat endemic to game design, but really to design writ large, and they should be a part of all of our lives, you know that's that's a way to to turn something and 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 uh, alter it into a new form that that's still what it is, but you know gives it new life. Powerful. Does um, in your book play anything? The pleasure of limits, the uses of boredom, and the secret of games. You you then I guess you posit that you really could introduce these ideas, um, and, like game design ideas, I- into making any activity we do in life. I, I guess a little more interesting. Yeah, one of the things that, uh, as a game designer, and as a game designer who's a kind of been a, I don't know, a little bit of a, a non-traditional one, many of the, the, the traditional games that I've made, the computer games and, and, and games on, on smartphones and so forth, have not been just used for, for entertainment. I spent uh, a lot of time making games for education and, and for politics and for corporate use. And um, there have been a number of names for this sort of stuff over the years from serious games. And there's this this word that I can't stand, gamification, yeah. been used in, in recent years. And you know, it's all about kind of taking the, the power of, uh, of attention that games seem to be able to exert on people who play them and trying to transfer that into supposedly useful domains uh, like the, the classroom or the office. Um, and, you know, one of the, the lessons that I, I learned from that practice, both my own and watching what others do, is that this, this idea that, like, there's something magical about the game itself and that we kind of take the game and stuff the content inside it. Like, we just need to take <laughs> education and stuff it inside a video game, yeah. and then somehow it'll be good again. Yeah. Um, that's mistaken, right? And we know it's mistaken, and we've actually known for decades that, it, that, it, that it's mistaken, since the earliest kind of edutainment titles, because initially it's a little bit novel, and you know, oh, this is cool, and then very quickly it wears off, and you realize, hmm, this is actually just the same thing repackaged, and, you know, someone's trying to trick me 
into into learning or working through this game. So how do you get over that? How do you overcome it? Um, and how do you do it while still learning some of the useful lessons that come from uh, from from game design and from uh, and from play? So my answer to that question is that you you take the the play experience and extract it from the game and, and try to look, use it as like a lens to look at the world. So if you think about games as being constructed of these, these limitations and constraints, really what games are, kind of material things that limit what we can do. And this is very unintuitive, really, because we think of that idea of play as, again, as freedom. Like yeah, not limiting. Want, yeah. Play time, yeah. But of course, when you have that freedom, it's, it's, it's oppressive. It's restrictive. Uh, if you you know if you take your, uh, your your kids or your class or your employees even and you sort of say you know go do whatever you want they're just at sea they're lost they mm. don't know what to do they need structure and so if you say hey I need a I need a report on this client uh, by the end of the day and you know please just you know keep it to one page um, then you know what to do and or if you tell your you know your your, your class uh, I'd like you to write a, a short essay it should be 300 words or I'd like you to read quietly for 15 minutes. Or you give your kids, you know, a box and say, uh, go find something to do with the box. Then they have structure. Uh, and and that, that structure creates the opportunity uh, for, the, for invention. So, you know, contrary to our, our kind of received opinion, where play is the opposite of freedom, I'm sorry, play is the opposite of work. It's this kind of pure freedom. We need to reduce freedoms in order for play uh, to happen. And this happens with, with every kind of game or playful experience. You know, the, uh, it could be a designed experience, like a, a game like Tetris, uh, in which you have these shapes that you're trying to organize in a certain way on the screen. It could be an invented experience. You throw you know, some kids together on the playground, and they come up uh, with a game. Um, and it could be an experience that's constrained just by the state of the world. So, you know, people who try to use um, their, their, their know-how of their, uh, of their urban environment or, or like an app like Waze to kind of, you know, find a, a faster way to get home or yeah. to work, you know, they're also in, engaging in play. So in all of those cases, you have to embrace those limitations. You have to take them seriously and say, okay, this is what I'm dealing with. And if you don't do that, you'll never, ever succeed. But unfortunately, the attitude that we tend to have collectively is that we can, we can um, overcome any limitation. You know, we believe in ourselves and we can achieve anything. But that, that's just not going to help you when mm-hmm. you have to get to work and there's traffic or when you have to run errands and you don't have enough time to get those done or when you're just sort of bored sitting in the airport waiting for your plane. You can't just kind of will your way out of that in your mind. And in fact, thinking that you can do so kind of makes you go crazy. <laughs> so so the, way to bring, the way to bring play into your ordinary life is not to make more games out of that ordinary life, but to, to accept the limitations and constraints of the situations, the objects, the people, the experiences that you find yourself in, and then to ask yourself a question, okay, like, what can I do with these? How can I, how can I work with them in a way that then produces new, new outcomes? Uh, and, and then those outcomes are, are A, feasible, which is a great thing, and also when you accomplish them, you feel that pleasure that's associated with fun for having taken them seriously and having, having worked within the constraints that were given. That is, it's. I mean, it's it's really a different way of approaching life. And I guess many people would rather, once they feel limited, they just, I guess, turn off, numb themselves, try to escape yeah, it. Just throw it away. You yeah. Know, like this is this is annoying. You know, yeah. I don't want to deal with this. Give me something else. And we we live in such an age of surplus that you can always find something else. You can mm-hmm. always decide. You know, I don't really. I'm just not into mowing my lawn anymore. <laughs> I'm just going to hire that out. You yeah. Know, or. 
um, you know, I'm not really feeling this, uh, this, this, this restaurant or, you know, or this, uh, uh, or, you know, this, this, what's in my pantry right now. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll just choose something else. Um, and of course, there's also, a, you know, an assumption of, of, um, of, of material um, uh, capacity that's associated with, with that surplus too, right? There's a lot of people who actually can't make those choices. And historically, you find a lot of great examples of play in, uh, in hardship. Um, one of the examples I discuss in the book is uh, uh, some of the techniques uh, in, the, in the Depression that people use to, to sort of recipe and, and food management techniques and, you know, making coffee out of peas and stuff like this. And, <laughs> um, uh, and you know, no, nobody really wants to drink coffee made out of peas instead of coffee. But the interesting thing about coffee made out of peas is that you made it out of peas. You're not trying to hide it. And sort of right. go, I'm going to pass this off as coffee when really it's peas. It's, huh, here's what coffee made with peas tastes like. Let's give it a go. Interesting stuff. Man, Ian, it really is a different way to look at life. And I guess that's what it takes is mixing your fields and expertise in computer, uh, interactive computer gaming and, and the science there. Um, with real-life situations. We will continue this journey with uh, Ian as we uh, review his book, Playing Anything, The Pleasure of Limits, The Uses of Boredom, and The Secret of Games. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We are talking about the book Play Anything, The Pleasure of Limits, The Uses of Boredom, and The Secret of Games with Dr. Ian Bogost. He is a professor of interactive computing at Georgia Institute of Technology and also a founding partner at Persuasive Games, LLC, which is an independent game studio um, and also a contributing editor uh, for The Atlantic. Um, And we appreciate you being here with us, Ian. What um, I love this idea that... I mean, there's just so much to learn in this world. It's incredible. You're teaching us kind of a backdoor uh, entrance or way into our life so that we can we can actually take more out of it. And one of the points you just made for us is this idea of um, accepting accepting our limitations. And and I, I see it when like kids get together and they're going to play a game. They always gather at the very beginning. It seems like and create the rules. And the very rules themselves are the limitations, right? We, we set up our limitations, and those limitations are what make the game fun. That's what makes the game. That, that's right. And, in fact, it's what, it's what makes the game exist. Yeah, it doesn't exist outside of rules. The game, the game wouldn't, wouldn't be there at all. Um, yeah, you know, and, and kids are, are, are always – it's always great to look at, at kids for, for, for lessons of all kinds. But when it comes to play, we often look at the children, and we think, you know, okay, how can we recapture and rekindle some of that – uh, that childhood uh, energy and um, an attitude in in, our, in ourselves as we become uh, adults, and one of the things that I think we miss when, when we look at kids as ideals is that one they're sort of forced into this, right? Like the world is not designed uh, for for little people; it's it's designed right. for for grownups, and so they are constantly forced from the very earliest ages to kind of recognize, okay, like I can't reach the top of that counter; it's a struggle for me to go up these steps. 
um, I have to go where people take me because I really can't go on my own. Or if I can, then someone's telling me, no, you can't, or you have to go at this hour. So, um, so that experience of, of constraint, uh, of limitation, is sort of naturally uh, present uh, for, for children. And it's one of the reasons that, uh, that they're so good at play. They're always, always recognizing and kind of looking for ways of re- uh, Kind of reconfiguring the, the the constraints in their in their ordinary lives, uh, and then we that's the thing that we lose most. Uh, I think there's there's been a a series of, of studies and arguments uh, in positive psychology over the last few years that that you know we want to rekindle the the kind of kind of playful mood in adulthood and. And, and there's this idea that we should do that by by playing as adults in the way that, that kids play, you know, whether mm. that's, that's out, outside or whether yeah. that's by, you know, by participating in, in, in traditional games and, and so forth. And, you know, look, there's nothing wrong with getting ourselves sure. outside more and running around and all that. That's all well and good. But uh, but what actually we want to do as adults is we want to we want to remain adults and be playful in the things that we do in our adult lives, in our relationships, and uh, in our work, in our careers, and in our relationships with our children, and in all the things that we have to face and deal with. That's where we want to inject that, not that experience of play, not, not by sort of, uh, you know, reforming ourselves into, into, uh, uh, into children again. Yeah, you don't need to be more juvenile. You, you could just actually you know, intensify the limitations or, uh, you know, or, or try to enhance the excitement of your day. One of the things I know you talk a lot about in the book are the playgrounds. And um, do do our playgrounds, I guess, define it for us, but then are playgrounds created or or are they already existing yeah, in our lives? Yeah, right. Let me, let me talk about that a little. So I, I use the word playground in the book in a somewhat uh, metaphorical way, although it's connected to the ordinary word playground that people think of. So you think of a playground like in a park, and, you know, maybe there's some play equipment or a space to run around in or, or a sand pit or what have you. Uh, but one of the interesting features of it is that it's, it's, it, there's a boundary. It's surrounded by something that you know that could be the the the, the kind of physical pavement of the of the sidewalk uh, around it, or it could be a space in a field where you arbitrarily set up some points and, and then you make it into a pitch for soccer or for football. So a playground, what makes it what makes it possible to play, is when you you draw a sort of real or conceptual boundary around some set of stuff, and then you put yourself inside that playground with that stuff, and you say, okay. But now, what can I do? What is possible? And sometimes you invent those rules. And some of those rules get invented on the fly by kids, you know, kids playing or deciding what to do. Or even when you, you know, you're going to go out with friends for a night and you're kind of negotiating the terms. Oh, let's go, to a, let's go out to eat. Oh, let's not spend too much money, what have you. Um, but sometimes those are received. And one of the ways that we receive the constraints of life is through history. So a game like association football, which we call soccer in America, uh, has a history and a set of rules. And you know what it means to play under those rules because that's what it means to play the game. And it has been for for 100 years. No hands. Yeah. Right. In other cases, the the world itself gives us the the, the rules. Or really, rules isn't the right word in that case. It's the the, the limitations. You know. So if you're if you're going to go running and um, and there's a, a hill in your in your neighborhood or where you know where you do your jogging and it's particularly challenging and so you're kind of working your way to to perform better on that on that hill at pace. Um, it's not that you didn't invent the, the, the topology of the, of, of the neighborhood, and um, it wasn't given to you by, by other humans in history. I mean, it may have been you know, terraformed as the city was developed. It's just there. It's just there in the world. 
And the vast majority of stuff is like that. Hmm. It's just there in the world. We just find it, you know, and it's, it's things like the, the path that we, that we travel uh, to and from work or school. It's in the way that we deal with, you know, a difficult coworker or a challenging project. Um, it's in all of the sort of detritus of our lives that we try to just get rid of or get through as fast as we can, loading and, lo- and unloading the dishwasher and, um, you know, mowing the lawn and vacuuming the, the rug, all of those kind of errands that we, we just want to get through in order that we can get to the good stuff. But then if, if we're just kind of racing to get through all the other stuff so we can find the good stuff, eventually we don't know what the good stuff is anymore. Mm. And if we could treat everything as good stuff, as, as potentially interesting, if we'd only sort of stop for a second and go, huh, like actually maybe the dishwasher is terrifically interesting. I, I, my goal is to figure out how, how many uh, uh, plates and dishes I can cram into here before my, my wife notices and starts <laughs> it without me or, right. or, 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 or so that it still cleans effectively. That's one little tiny victory in your ordinary life that has made it better and more pleasurable and more fun. And if you can get a dozen, a thousand, a million of those out of life, then it will be so much richer than if you're just waiting for the best, the, the next best thing to come along. Interesting. So that is, is that where you get into boredom? I mean, you need, you need the monotony to know the fun. Yeah, that's right. Boredom, you know, again, we never want to be bored and right. we have all these opportunities to avoid boredom. The moment that you start feeling a little bit bored, you're like, oh, forget it. Yeah. I'm just going to go find something else to do. And because we have these, these phones in our pockets that connect us with the, the, the entirety of the rest of the world at any moment, and there's always something new that we can seek out instead of kind of focusing on that moment. But it's almost like in order for you to – if fun is, is finding something new and something familiar – then for that to work, for that, that novelty to be sought out in the first place, you kind of have to exhaust all the other options, all the options you've already seen in order to get there. It's almost like you have to first become bored in order that you can get to fun. So I see boredom as, a, as like almost like a signal flare. Like it's when you start feeling bored, you're like, aha, something is happening here. I'm reaching the edge of my of my knowledge of whatever it is that I'm doing, whatever situation I'm in, whatever object I'm manipulating, I'm now at the point where I'm in, I'm in new territory. I'm in wilderness. So that's a, it's a great sign if you can embrace it and then say, okay, you know, now that I'm in that, that wilderness and, and I feel that anxiety associated with, with discomfort, now I need to dig deeper into it. And, and, and that's, where the, that's where the fun lives. Oh, that is, that's fantastic. We've only got about a minute left, Ian. Talk to us. Uh, what, would, what would you say is the one thing we can do? Like, it's just kind of immediate that I could introduce into my life today that would, would make playing anything, like the name of your book, Play Anything, would make it more likely to be able to, yeah. to play. I mean, I think the thing to do is just to, to start with something that you've overlooked or something that you think you dislike or that, or that, that doesn't interest you. Uh, some ordinary thing that you do repeatedly um, every day or every week, uh, and and try to focus on it. Look for something in it that you, you know that you can that you can turn around, that you can get better at, um, that you can manipulate in some way, uh, and and you know commit to that for the sake of of interest in the thing, not in order to distract yourself. Uh, there's so much in the world to be curious about, and we're so naturally curious as human beings. Uh, we just need to exercise that muscle of using it everywhere. Good stuff. Dr. Ian Bogost, thank you so much for your great work. Uh, The name of the book, Play Anything, The Pleasure of Limits, The Uses of Boredom, and The Secret of Games. Powerful, powerful uh, insights. Again, he's a professor um, at uh, Georgia Institute of Technology in the field of interactive computing. 
learning from all realms of life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to BYU Radio. Welcome to her house. She is looking about. She is here to break down things you her name is McKenna Baus. She's Baus in the house. She is one of our producers and likes to come in with little mind benders. Makes us think. That I do. And today you're going to teach us that even the Amish are loving this technology boon. Yeah, technology is you know entering realms that I don't think we really ever expected right. it to. And it's really interesting seeing why and how the Amish communities are dealing with it. How are they? Because it's... It's got to be so foreign for them to – you would think to look at us on our phones, you know, walking into poles yeah. and getting hit by carriages because we're not paying attention. I mean I think that is definitely something that they're aware of and um, it's something that is sort of discussed is why, you know, it's been avoided. I think more than those of us who actively use technology, I think they understand the dangers and, you know, the side effects – of its benefits more yeah. than we maybe do. Right. No, right. Yeah. Well, in, isn't that interesting that their beliefs, their morals are probably proving true and, and being validated by our, you know, our loss of consciousness? Exactly. So one of the big reasons that the technology is viewed skeptically and has been avoided is because it's seen as something that drives people apart. And this has been the case for a long time. One of the reasons they don't use cars is because when you have cars, you can spread apart. It fosters yeah. disconnection yeah. from one another. Yeah. And that is a theme that we see carried over into our daily cell phone use. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that we're caught in the, our own little worlds, that all you have to do is put in a pair of headphones and you're not in the same plane no, as no. the people around you. And so that's something that they're very, very conscious of. But at the same time, our society is changing so fast that there is some extent to which at, like adaptation has to take place. Well, it'll be forced upon them, you're saying. Well, they are already have been voluntarily picking it up. Um, for example, there's you know bakeries. They want to be able to you know, do better business, and they're having computers now so they can run credit cards. So that way more people can buy their goods oh, using software to yeah. take care of payroll issues. Um, maybe having a phone just for work purposes so they can make calls from a job site and talk to somebody, you know, one of their yeah. clients or whatever and say like, hey, so, you know, this is going to take a little longer than usual or something. It would be, it would be, yeah, it would be like interacting with an alien planet at some point you're if you want to interact and sell your you know your furniture to the alien planet yeah you have to find a common language isn't that interesting and so you know while these changes have been taking place you know they're having to find ways to still place limits and so a lot of times it's like you know the phone doesn't come inside the house yeah you know it's really good principles that we could apply or like you know definitely isn't at the dinner table yeah when the kid even the you know kids sometimes have them and it's okay but when you're together you're not on your phone. You know, you can use it for Isn't other kind that, of purposes. Yeah. And it's really interesting seeing this example of how technology can be used in moderation and you get some of its benefits while still being careful about how it can. Powerful. And then you hope us. that they don't lose their identity and their virtue and their beliefs mm-hmm. in the process. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's something that I think – they're definitely going to have to deal with. And there's yeah. still some hesitancy. Living in the world, but not, I guess, of the world. 
Exactly. Interesting stuff. Lessons from the Amish and McKenna Baus. Thank you, McKenna. Great stuff, folks. Helping us all, I think, uh, have a greater appreciation of everybody on this greater. We'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with Jeff Simpson and Terry South. The gang's here gathered uh, to do what we can in this hour to give you a leg up in life. Today we will be talking about how being mad is hurting your relationship. It's getting it's getting problematic. And we're going to even talk about how their anger may not be the real problem. There might be something deeper going on. Ah! Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. Of course there's something going on. I was really mad. These potatoes are cold. <laughs> it's not the potatoes. Uh, Brian Willoughby from um, Brigham Young University, he's going to be joining us from the School of Family Life and talking about how you, you got to sort through your emotions. When you're angry, you think it's that's the issue. The anger is the issue. But deep down, there might be something else going on, some fear, some insecurity, some doubt. Thank you. And he will walk us through how to maybe turn off some of that anger and, and actually direct your emotion to to the healthier base. We'll also, of course, be visiting our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Uh, plus, we are celebrating Pepperoni Pizza Day all day long. Yes! Grab yourself a little pizza pie. I'm telling you, it doesn't get any better than pepperoni and sausage. Yeah, really? Yes, really. Like, But have you, have you ever had like a really... Have you ever had like a really good meat pizza with all the meats on it? No, I'll do that for sure. But I'm just I'm a, a man of simple tastes. Yeah, pepperoni. I mean that's that's good. And we, we've we've I think eventually or uh, we did prove historically that it is okay to put pineapple on pizza. You're wrong. No, we actually took a poll, and according to our own listeners, there was one listener that called and said that she was okay with pineapple on her pizza. Yeah, but she may, for all you know, be the Queen of England. <sighs> that would make <laughs> mean she's crazy, which makes sense. I mean, the Queen of England does listen to the show. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. She listens to this show, and I watch her show, The Crown. Matthew, you can cannot go wrong with a good pineapple Canadian bacon pizza. <laughs> Thank you, Your Royal Highness. Thank you. No. Thank you. Hey, we're also going to have empty news today. Uh, foul play. A Dutch man in prison for stealing a plastic duck. Foul. F-O-W-L. Foul play. <laughs> so, of course, we'll cover that, plus other empty news stories. We'll visit the good brethren from BYU Sports Nation to find out what's coming up on their uh, on their show at the top of the hour. It's always fun to find out, you know, what's what they're thinking before they launch. 
They're usually eating something yeah. right before the show. Yeah, they need to get their, their nourishment up. They're also waxing usually and putting on makeup. So I think that scream was, was the audio of them yeah. getting waxed. Yeah, that was Jerem having – yeah, it was hard. He had a hard wax. For, for the football team, it's a bye week. Yeah, they're kicking For BYU back. football, they have a week off. They're trying to fix some a lot of some things. Some ankles, some bones. Um, so the question would be, does BYU Sports Nation take this week – to kind of shore up some weak spots, kind of fix some problems on the show. Oh, but you have some assumptions there. No, I'm just, do they take that time? Have you been talking to Ben the, Bagley, the, the producer There's always of the places show? where you can, like, make a tweak here, adjust there. Even if everything's running well, you need to still maintain the, the product. And so what yeah. are they doing this week to make sure they're arrested? Yeah. But also that they improve. So when the season starts again, they're ready to go. Maybe that's what they are doing, and they waited until Jerem was going to be out of town that's for it. that to happen. They probably did. Okay, everybody, while he's gone, Let's... here's all the things we need to fix about Jerem's performance. <laughs> we will move. We're going to move our offices ah. when Jerem's gone. Don't tell him. Nobody That'll be tell funny. him. <laughs> um, yeah, he's out of town. He'll be sitting in accounting when he comes back. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Or HR. Yeah. That's even scarier. Yeah, it is. He'll but that's fine. for an unrelated matter. Yeah. Um, I thought it was weird when I went in there because they are taking it a lot easier. They had a hot tub in their meeting room today. Nice. Really? Yeah, it was really awkward. They all just have their shirts off in their trunks, hmm. soaking with that smell of chlorine in the air. Yeah, yeah. Tell me if you think it's time for me to refill my hot tub. Uh, there's like a greenish color to it. No, you're fine. Okay. Oh, by the way, here's the question. Is it flammable? Uh, I haven't lit up <laughs> recently. <laughs> well, good. That's really good. But just just go light a match, and if it doesn't ignite, you've got at least another 30 days. Okay. Good to know. Unless it's a dark green flammable, then you're fine. Dark green flammable is okay. By the way, there is a really funny YouTube video. Not funny, but very interesting YouTube video you can go watch to find out how much um, urine is in the pool. Hmm. Because there's certain things that come out in human fluids that could not be there any other way. Hmm. Like, by the way, uh, certain things in soft drinks, for example. Ah. It, and so they can actually go in and measure those particles in a pool and tell you that pool has 30 gallons of urine in it. This begs the question, why are you so familiar with this? I don't even have a pool. But I wanted to – I was just doing a little search for my neighborhood pools. Okay. And but I, I just know you like to drink soda quite a bit. I totally do. But that's not why I did that. But I now have decided I'm not going to be swimming at any pools yeah. near me. <laughs> I was going to say, everything <laughs> I've read is like, just deal with it. It's – yeah. But I did think of you, Jeffrey, because I thought you have a hot tub and you have cute little kids. I mean it's Michael Phelps said – Every time he's in the pool, he uses it as a restroom. He said that? Yeah. Wow. Mm. So I don't know why he told us that. Yeah, it seemed like I mean, a lot I of I can't look at it the same way. Right. But anyway, it's it's just fascinating science. It really is a fascinating – because it's all about the science of – and chlorine, the more chlorine you smell, the more foreign subjects or, ob, or particles are in that – Water. Yeah, you're not supposed to smell the chlorine. That, that chlorine smell is the chemicals working. And yeah. They're not supposed so to do that. So if you have – so it's light a match and smell your chlorine too. And if it smells 
hmm. like it's time to change it, then I'd probably keep the, cool, the kids out of the pool. By hmm. the way, doing that business in a pool is, a great, is the great unifier. Yeah. It brings yeah. everybody together. It, it's, it's the one thing that all humans do in a pool. <laughs> okay, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what did you want to bring up? The Big Five news organizations have passed on offering former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer a job as an executive paid contributor, network sources confirmed to NBC News on Tuesday. Sean Spicer exited the White House. His representatives have been holding individual conversations about the possibility of President Donald Trump's former uh, spokesperson joining one of the major TV networks, which included CBS, CNN, Fox, ABC, NBC. Huh? But they won't touch him, said a media industry executive familiar with those conversations. The news organization, organizations might use him on a roundtable every once in a while. Well, but as a paid exclusive contributor, it's not happening. Is he? Does he know sports? No, this isn't sports. This is on any of these news shows. Oh, I thought, you, I thought you said networks. ESPN. No, it's CBS, CNN, Fox, oh. ABC, and, C- and NBC. CBC, of, oh, they, oh, ABC. Oh, that's why, because you said the Big Five, so I'm thinking the Big Five conferences. Oh, okay. So that's interesting. Nobody wants him. Nobody wants him. And but then what's it says, his name? Kissed him. Yes. That was uh, Corbin. Corden. Gor- yeah, yeah, Corden, yeah. A number of network insiders who spoke on condition of anonymity to protect their business relationships said none of the networks were interested in hiring Spicer due to a lack of credibility. What? What? You stand up there and argue about crowd size. Well, but I mean, they would bring him in for a crowd size discussion. Yeah, every once in a while, but no one's going to have him just on staff. He was just doing what he was told. Yeah, that's well. what you do when you well, have a job. You're ridiculed as a podium driving, gum chewing. But who was he talking to? He was talking to these different companies yeah. that now don't want him anywhere near him because he was saying things that were obviously not true. Yeah, yeah. So. Boy, okay. Lack of credibility. The Trump administration will reportedly soon scale back regulations on American gun sales overseas, making it easier for U.S. gun manufacturers to sell firearms to foreign buyers. As part of the plan, according to Reuters, oversight of such gun sales would be transferred from the State Department to the Commerce Department. There will be more leeway to do arms sales, a senior administration official says. You could really turn the spigot on if you do it the right way. The mm. chances, the change would not require congressional approval. Okay. So more guns. Well, we it's got, jobs, right? It's I guess jobs. And fun, I mean more sport. Uh, yeah, that's the kind of, no. That's Unless, not I what guess the, uh, about. But yeah, that's They'll just sell it to countries. Um, A San Diego children's hospital unveiled a collection of remote-controlled luxury mini cars on Tuesday that allow its young patients to drive themselves to the operating room. The cars at the Ratty Children's Hospital are actually operated by a nurse or a doctor and are part of a new program designed to make children more relaxed before the procedures. That's cool. Hold on. Is driving relaxing? Well, well, I get stressed well, they're, they're, out of my head driving. They're just in the car. The nurse or the doctor has a remote control, yeah. and they're just driving them down the hallway. But it's, the kids are relaxed because you're not being wheeled down the hallway on a gurney. That's true. Probably not relaxing. Yeah. It's probably just the easing of nerves. That's really good. But wait till that kid gets the remote, and he has a, hits a beeline to the big freeway, <laughs> and he's out of there. So it says the kids are having fun. The parents are seeing that their their kids are relaxed, and they're happy on their way to something that's not so relaxing How and cool. happy. 
Uh, it says the cars are donated by the San Diego Regional Law Enforcement Teddy Bear Drive. Children have their pick of a BMW, Mercedes, or Lamborghini, oh. ensuring their ride to the operating room is a luxurious one. Always go with the Lambo. That's what Grandma the Lambo? used to say. Go with the Lambo. Wasn't that the name of your uh, fraternity, too? Mm-hmm. Lambo, Lambo, Lambo? No, Lambo, Lambo, Lambo. Oh, Lambo, Lambo, Lambo. Sorry. We were the Trace Lambos. And finally, David Brooks, a columnist for the New York Times. Yeah. He uh, wrote a column, and he started out with the four kinds of happiness. Now, okay. I'm not sure if this is something he came up with or if he adopted it from something else. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. No. Oh. This is Nap. The lowest kind of happiness is material pleasure. Having nice food and clothing and a nice house. Maslow taught that. Right? And he goes, then there's achievement. Yes. Right? The pleasure we get. Touchdown. The pleasure we get from earned and recognized success. Yes. Third, okay. So wait, wait. So that means I earned the money to pay for the house and the good food and all those things that I enjoy. mean that. Yeah. Third, there is genera- generavity. You need to read this word. Generativity. Generativity. What is that? The pleasure we get from giving back to others. Oh, uh, yeah, like being a generous. A, yeah. Being know, a giver. The word generous doesn't have a T in it, so you yeah. could call mm-hmm. it. Generosity, also, it might even right? also like be generating something like being a creator, being mm. a creative not just but somebody that is giving and generating more in this world than taking. Right. And then finally the highest kind of happiness Transcendence. is moral joy. Yeah. The glowing moral satisfaction joy. we get when we have surrendered ourselves to some noble cause. Or unconditional love. I love that. This is David Brooks. This is what New York Times. Who is this? Yeah, New York Times columnist. Love it. He's got. He's written a lot of really cool books and very. It's a very moral view of life. Yeah. I still think breakfast, lunch, and dinner are very good causes. And napping, number four. Mm-hmm. Napping is the transcendent apex of the four. Great happinesses. Napping mm. after, like immediately after the meal. Uh, it doesn't get any better than that. No. Mm-mm. Or napping as you're driving home with the meal, so you get a little In your energy driving car. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be great? See, that's that, that's really good. Four kinds of happiness. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep that. Now he has another set of four. That he talks about in there, not happiness. It's another. He's comparing and contrasting oh, throughout cool. the article. So it's interesting. I look it up. Give it a give it a read. Give it a read over and see if you can take some of that and. Uh, repurpose it for your you know public speeches like you do okay thank you <laughs> just here to help yeah I'm giving you content yeah thank you i appreciate that did you guys see the viral photo out of the new york city subway that captures america's best no, no? this really is a beautiful idea and we will post the photo on our twitter feed at dr matt show um it is a viral photo from the new york city subway and what it is it's a picture Um, A native New Yorker, Jackie Summers, posted a photo on Facebook and Twitter where that appears to show a Jewish man and a woman sitting on a New York City subway car next to a Muslim woman in a hijab holding a baby. And the caption Summers wrote on the Facebook article on the Facebook post says a Taoist, me, gives up his seat so a Hasidic couple could sit together. They scoot over so a Muslim mother could sit and nurse her baby on Easter Sunday. Wow. This is America, people letting people be people. So these are all org- – I mean these are, these, these are cultures and countries that are at war historically. And, 
everybody's getting along in a little subway car. That's great. That's pretty. I powerful. thought for a moment you were going to quote a Barbara Streisand song. No, but if you want to sing it. People who need people. Okay. Are no, the let's let, let's let's try let's try to let's try to keep this. Let's try to keep this on the on the higher end. Of, what does that mean? Just let's just try to keep it clean. Well, I did kind of use a higher register there, so that's mm. the higher end. I'm talking more of the artistic higher end. Okay. By the way, uh, some other um, people would co- commented on the post. This gives me joy. I will always pray that we as a nation might become one as we embrace each other and our differences. A beautiful tapestry, another said. And by the way, this isn't an extraordinary moment. This is an ordinary moment in New York City. Very common, uh, as you'll see, um, on the subway, which is, again, another place you'd think you wouldn't see necessarily people moving over or people taking care of people. So powerful stuff. Again, there's hope in this world, folks. There's hope, and uh, you are part of that solution. Up next, we're going to be talking about how to watch out for your anger, how to how it might be negatively impacting your relationship. Dr. Brian Willoughby will be here. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. Hey, today we're talking with Dr. Brian Willoughby, who is an associate professor in the School of Family Life at BYU, and uh, he's he's an expert that focuses on young adult dating, relationship patterns, as well as uh, other expertise in dating, sexuality, cohabitation, marriage formation. He does it all. Today he's talking about an article he wrote, How Being Mad is Hurting Your Relationships. Well, yeah, Bri. First yeah. of all, welcome. Good to be here. But, I mean, people are mad. Yes. I mean, there, there's a lot of emotions they show, right. but one I see a lot with clients is, you know, oh, he, I'm just, he's just always mad. Right. Yeah. He's that's one mad. of the things a lot of people talk about when they come to therapy yeah. or when they're seeking help. I'm just, I'm mad all the time. I feel angry. Yeah. All the time at my spouse. What is the, but there's like you, you actually bring out in your article that anger is what we call a secondary emotion. And we mm-hmm. always, we, people say that you hear that all the time, but explain what that means. So, so basically what that means is that anger, if you think about what the word secondary means, it means it comes second. And there's, what that so there's means, something before the anger. There's something that comes before the anger, that the anger that we're feeling is oftentimes due to other emotions that are a little bit deeper, a little bit more raw, and oftentimes the first thing we felt. Hmm. But then it leads to the anger, and the anger then is what we present. I see. So, um, so if are there other secondary emotions, and I guess there are other primary emotions. Yeah, probably the two most common ones that are our secondary emotions are fear and anxiety or stress, yeah. right? Because those are the two yeah. things we hear about. I'm just stressed out totally. all the time. I'm so stressed. I'm so stressed, or I'm so angry all the time. Those those are two really really common secondary emotions and two that really interfere with a lot of relationships. Well, and funny, you could actually see that being the typical marriage. Mm-hmm. Maybe the wife's always stressed and the husband's always angry. Right. And I'm always angry because you're always yeah. stressed. I wouldn't be as angry if you weren't always so stressed. Mm-hmm. Like you're never happy with our life. So that makes me angry. Right. Exactly. And then the problem is because they're secondary emotions, we're never dealing with the primary the real stuff. issue. 
underneath. Yeah. I call that the smoke and the fire. So we always chase the smoke, mm-hmm. but there's a fire, and the fire would be the primary emotions, which are what? What's the real – if it's not anger, right? what is it? So things like fear or yeah. disgust uh. with my partner. Right? These things are a little bit more tricky. Kind of visceral. Is deal. it like a visceral like, – is that a more automatic feeling? It's a more vulnerable feeling. Yeah, vulnerable. And it's, that's the way I like to describe it is, is these are things that, that are very vulnerable, right? My fear kind of makes me a vulnerable person. It's, it's something we don't like to confront fear. Right. Right. So like we don't talk about death mm-hmm. oftentimes. When I teach my students about death, I talk about we don't, we don't talk about death very much because we fear it. We know yeah. it's going to happen, yeah. but we're scared of it. And so yeah. we, don't, we don't talk about it. And, and um, yeah, and because – so it's funny. We may not know how to talk as much – I mean we probably don't know how to talk about either of these, mm-hmm. either the, the secondary or the primary. But right. we really probably never address right. the primary. And what we usually do is we feel the anger, we express the anger, and then the anger becomes about what you did. Right? So I'm angry right. because you did – this more, yeah. and, and there's a big middle ground there that we're forgetting is well, you did this that actually made me worry or fearful about this yeah. part of myself or about the relationship, yeah. and I'm dealing with it with my anger. And so, why don't we? These are the vulnerable feelings. Some mm-hmm. others that you have you talk about are fear, hurt, shame. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see that a lot where I've done something wrong and I feel like a loser because of it, right. and but then I'm mad at you. Mm-hmm. Because you keep bringing it up. Right. You keep bringing up where I'm a loser. Right. And, and the, the reason why we don't like those primary emotions is that they make us actually deal with stuff. Yeah. And we don't like to do that. And mm-hmm. a lot of this comes back to we like things to be easy for us. And anger is an easy emotion. Oh, yeah. Because it's easy to blame it on someone else. It's, right? Anger is an outward thing. It's like, yeah. well, I, I feel anger because you did this. But it's, and it, but it creates clouds, right? It like, creates right. a lot of smoke. It stirs the dust up. Mm-hmm. And then we can kind of go hide in the dust. Right. And then I don't have to deal with the fact of I felt shame. Right. And that shame is because of this thing that happened when I was little. Right. Or when I was dating someone for the first time, this happened. And, and I don't like to think about it because – because it makes all these weird emotions come up and I, I don't know what to do with them. And so I'm just going to be angry. And isn't that crazy because we we love each other so much. We want to be married forever. And yet I don't want you to know my most vulnerable things. Right. And that's oftentimes for a lot of us a carryover of the dating stage. Yeah. Where when we were dating, yes, we wanted to kind of make sure we were compatible and in theory be open and honest with each other. But at the same time, I want you to stick around. And so during the dating phase, I got really used to putting my best face forward mm. and and being selectively vulnerable. And unfortunately for a lot of people, that carries into their marriage is there's still this underlying anxiety of if you really knew me, yeah. if you really knew all the garbage that I'm dealing with, you'd probably leave. You wouldn't want to be you here. You wouldn't want to be here anymore. And, and, and sometimes that's true too because in our marriages we say, well, if you ever do this, I'm out of here. Right. And you're like, ah, dang, I did that last week. <laughs> right, exactly. Darn it. And that, that makes it even less likely. Right. I'll be open and vulnerable and, and, and share these, these primary emotions that I'm feeling. It's really um, – in the article you talk about, it's like an iceberg. And we always f- fight on the top of the iceberg, but deep down is where the real pain, the real mass. And I guess until we can get down to the base stuff, is, is this never going to go away? Probably not for a lot of us. And, and that's where for a lot of couples, they get in this cycling pattern. Of, oh, I just feel like we keep having the same fight over and over and over again. I just feel like I'm, I'm angry all the time with you. I'm, I'm frustrated all the time with the relationship. Well, it's because, like you said, we're not dealing with the bigger part of the iceberg under the surface. 
We're not figuring out what is it about me that might have nothing to do with this marriage. Right. Nothing to do with my partner. Completely me. Yeah. But I, I haven't taken the time to figure out what that is. And it's um, – I guess like you're saying, it could be something from our childhood. It could be how we were parented. It could just be whatever it is. So can I go deal with it myself or is it something that I have to bring out with my spouse? Um, in most cases, it's probably a little bit of both. kind of yeah. depends on what it is. I mean if, if this is something that, that is about my childhood or my parents or something happened early in life, a lot of that might be some self-work that I need to do just just to kind of figure out what it is. Yeah. You know, actually realize that, hey, you know, I've, I've been mad at my husband for this, this, and this, and that, that's actually about my dad Yeah, and what was going on early on. Um, but there might be other things because one of the other places this hurt and vulnerability and sadness and shame can come from, and this is not uncommon, is something happened early in our relationship. Yeah. First year of marriage, something occurred. I didn't want to make it a big deal. I wanted to be a good spouse. We were newlyweds. I didn't want to fight. And so we just kind of pushed it aside. And, and maybe I'm carrying that mm. with me for years or decades. And so maybe that is something that now we need to actually sit down and address as a couple. Even though it was 20 years ago, I, yeah. I've never been able to get past the hurt or the sadness that I felt around something. So I, I guess the key is at some point you you would want to get really effective about talking about your most vulnerable issues, mm-hmm. right, which – for some is like – I mean that's like the third rail of the subway. You just right. don't – don't touch the third rail. Right. You can touch the first and the second, but the third rail will kill you. Um, so how do I and what do I do as a spouse to help my partner feel like they're safe to share that? I think you create a culture where anger triggers an investigation. Right, so instead of anger being something that I get defensive yeah, about, or the, we go back yeah, and forth, yeah, the hand grenade that blows it yeah, all up. Is again, if we understand where anger comes from, as soon as one of us gets angry, if my spouse is getting angry, it becomes a hit. Huh? What's going on? Yeah, right. You, you're angry. Let's figure out. Let's let's put our the d- d- detective hats right, and right. figure out what's going on. Yeah, when in my program I call it vital signs. So mm-hmm. we take the minute I see as an EMT back in the day when I'd see respirations changing, heart rate going up, we would use those as signs that there's a deeper issue. Right. But a lot of times when you see your partner's veins in their neck, mm-hmm. you use that as a sign to get out of there. And again, the key is I can't put on my detective hat and say, let's figure out what's wrong right. with you. You are so messed up. Right. Let's, right. let's figure out your problems. It's, no, let's figure out what it might be about you, what it might be about or me, or about our doing. pattern, mm-hmm. and, 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 and figure out kind of the root cause because that's what we can deal with. Right. Right. When – and I guess is, is, this a, is this a learned thing then? Do we – we've learned not to share our most vulnerable stuff. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a learned thing. I think for a lot of us, it's just kind of innately how we are as humans. We we don't like these feelings in terms of being vulnerable with other people. We we have underlying fears of of being abandoned. A lot of it goes down to just the fundamental nature of relationships. Yeah, they're relationships of choice. They're not fixed relationships. It's not like my mom or dad where you know I I know they pretty much whatever I yeah. say, they're stuck with me. Right, right. You you can leave even if we've been married for forty years. You can leave. Anytime you want, and you don't need a reason. Right. And I know that deep down, even though we might have a really committed, loving marriage, and, and there's fear and natural anxiety around that. And I think that gets in the way sometimes. Man, powerful and deep, right? I mean, and, and inside of every discussion you're having. We're speaking with Dr. Brian Willoughby, who is a professor, associate professor in the School of Family Life here at Brigham Young University. We'll continue the journey. You can find out more about Brian at his website, drbrianwilloughby.com. 
drbrianwillaby.com. And uh, we're going to get more solutions. How do we get down to these more primary emotions in our relationships? You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio. Welcome back with uh, Dr. Brian Willoughby. He is an associate professor in the School of Family Life at BYU and uh, one of our core or contributors. We love having him on because we can just we can just pick his brain and ask every question. Jeff always gives me a list of like seven questions <laughs> to ask Brian. Today we're talking about anger. That wasn't one of your questions, though, was it, Jeffrey? That was, no, no. That was, we, I think, Terry's question. We don't get angry at each other. No. My wife and I. We don't either, you and I. Except for, I mean, that hmm. one time. Hmm. But yeah, that was We won't anger. bring that up. That was love. That's that in the past. Love. That was a love tap. Yeah. Yeah. Just a, Just a little, little cute little love tap. So Brian's been teaching us that there's primary emotions like fear, hurt, shame, disgust, loss, sadness, pain. There's secondary emotions, anger, frustration, anxiety, jealousy. But instead of chasing the jealousy – there's probably a deeper fear mm-hmm. or something deeper. And you're teaching us that we need to get into it. I mean, it makes sense. Like how many times I've had clients where they have they have a lot of pain. They're in chronic pain. Right. And amazingly, they're always angry mm-hmm. and yeah. in chronic pain. And then so but then 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 the wife a lot of times or the spouse doesn't matter. They'll be scared because he seems to be using his meds too much. Right. But when he uses his meds more. He's, he's actually less angry, right. except sometimes he's still angry because he wishes he didn't have to use his meds so right. much. Yeah. So it, it really – it's – there's this deeper human side of all of us. And I wonder, Brian, how much of it we even know is going on. It seems like it's almost not even in, in our own self-awareness scope. Yeah, a lot of times that's very true. And, and like I said, that's the power of these secondary emotions is they're easier. They deflect yeah. away from us. And, and a lot of times, and I've talked to a lot of people that will come with, you know, I'm stressed all the time or I'm angry all the time and aren't even aware of the primary emotions underneath or where they come from. Right. And it's not until you really sit down and kind of walk them through, okay, let's, let's talk about the last time you were angry. Where does that come from? Well, my, my partner did this. Well, no, no, not, not from them. Yeah. So why, why does that bother what you What does so that much? actually yeah. do to you? Why is that actually bothering you? And for a lot of them... You can see the wheels turning for the first time. Yeah. Like, I've I've never thought about that. Mm-hmm. I just I just you made me angry, and so I got angry. I didn't think about why I personally in that situation am getting angry or stressed or feeling jealous. Can you can because it is so vulnerable? Do you does vulnerability get easier and easier? Yes, that is a learned skill. You can As learn. Being, you can learn to to be vulnerable, and like any learned skill, it, a lot of it. Is practice and and what I tell a lot of couples and a lot of individuals as they're doing that is I I, I say be vulnerable about the really little things first. Sometimes that can help because it can be really hard to jump in the deep end and say, hey, I really need to you know be completely open with you about my deepest fears and anxieties about work or this marriage or our kids. You know you want to get to that place, but a lot of times you can start with the day to day things that happen that you think to yourself. 
about a movie or a TV show or something you saw on CNN, and you think, oh, I, I should tell my partner that, but they won't care. Yeah. That's, that's not a big deal. Start by doing that. You know, like, hey, I read this news story, and I got really scared about it. That's I started great. to think about my kids and, and our kids and what would happen to them. And again, we 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 brush that off like oh, yeah. I'm being silly. Yeah, it'll be it's not a big deal, right? It'll but you can happen. you can start with that. Start with sharing those small little vulnerabilities, those those irrational thoughts you have during the day that make you fearful or make you sad or, or make you you know jealous. Even yeah. hey, your your spouse did something really small and it, you felt that little tinge of jealousy, and you again brushed it off as no big deal. Share that, and, and as you do that on a regular basis, what a lot of people find is that when it becomes easier. And two, the relationship starts getting rich because you realize, wow, my, my spouse actually cares about me because hmm. I, I share these little things and they give me all this positive feedback yeah. and they're talking to me about how much they love me and, and how much they want to support me. And that's that's really great. That's interesting because it may be hard for you to share your vulnerabilities. Sometimes as a spouse, it's hard to hear them being mm-hmm. vulnerable. Yeah. So you almost say, I need don't right. worry about that. And sometimes we're not even aware yeah. we do that. We send, we send these very kind of subtle nonverbal clues or, or, or hints that when someone maybe shares a little vulnerability, we dismiss it yeah. or move on to the next thing. Like, oh, you're being silly. And and that sends a message of, Grow oh, up. I guess I can't do that. Right. Is, um, and this seems like a really important skill to be bringing out and thing to learn with your children. Right. Yeah, I was going to say – this actually transcends just romantic relationships. And th- this is a really key parenting thing for parents to learn, too, is to not just teach their kids how to do it, but but do it in that parent-child relationship. Mm. It's, you know, as many of us know, parenting teenagers is really hard. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons it's hard is because most parents haven't spent a lot of time teaching and being vulnerable with their kids. And so as adolescents are going through this very hard, hard time of their life where if you look at that list of primary emotions, yeah. it's daily. Oh, yeah. Right? Fear uh-huh. and disgust. That's just and shame. Yeah. That was just the bus things. ride, right? All yeah, four the, of those. That was the bus ride in, and 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 now I'm cycling through that. Um, but can I find moments with my children where I'm allowing them and maybe even probing them a little bit about, hey, you know, where are you where are you at where, with your feelings and emotions, hmm. and let's talk and let's let's allow you and and show you as a parent that you can tell me about your fears and anxieties, and I'm not going to dismiss them. Right, right. Um, I, that, I guess, is emotional intelligence, really, is getting good at, at sharing, being vulnerable. And then um, – because if, if we could get that – I mean, even somewhat skilled into our children, I guess it would help them eventually you know, be the whisperer that can get it out of their partner maybe yeah. a little bit easier. Yeah, it helps build – call relational competence. Yeah. Which is this idea that even even if I'm a ten year old, I'm learning and building the skills I'll need when I'm married. Yeah, and this is one of those skills. Is um, as we as we're wrapping up, what would you say? I, I guess you're saying anger or fear or um, you know anything that is kind of anxiousness. Those those are telling you something. Mm-hmm. So use those to get down to the deeper issue, and really, I guess. What would you suggest – so if somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, OK, I I just heard this. I kind of get it. I see that there's a deeper thing. How do I get my partner to go there with me? Mm-hmm. I mean, or how do I create the space where we can actually start doing this together? I think similar to what I said before about starting small in some ways is do it with your partner, not necessarily around the relationship stuff first. Yeah. 
right? So even start with work, your child. Yeah, or, start yeah. with parenting stuff or something that happened at work or something that happened at a church retreat. You know, something else in our lives where you felt anger at someone else, mm-hmm. right? I was angry at my mom. I was angry at our neighbor, and use that as opportunities to talk through with your with your spouse. Where did that come from? Again, the, 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 these processes that we've talked about. Why did I feel that? What is it about me? What is it about our life and my history that did that? And practice doing that together. And mm-hmm. as you do that, maybe with some of those more outside influences, then it can get a little bit easier to start to do it in the relationship. Yeah. No, it's powerful. And I've seen it. It works full on. It And, it, and then it changes as you can talk to more differently about it and actually engage at a different level. Mm-hmm. It changes everything. Um, good stuff. Dr. Brian Willoughby is his name. He has a book out there called The Marriage Paradox. You're not going to want to miss that. Go check out his website, drbrianwilloughby.com, and uh, continue the learning there. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you love stronger right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. You know, I boy, I hope we can catch him. We're going to go down to BYU Sports Nation, but because BYU football is off, then I'm thinking maybe these two guys are not even going to be down there. They're probably out lounging around eating donuts or pizza today. Uh, Spencer Linton, Jason Shepard, are you there? Yeah, we are We're here. here. Oh, where where wow. are these donuts and pizza that you speak of? Well, I, I was just thinking because it's, it's you know, BYU's bye week that you guys also have had a bye and you're not actually doing anything. Matt, remember how you get holidays off and mm-hmm. we still have shows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why would we take the bye week off? <laughs> That's so true. And by the way, did you, happy uh, pepperoni pizza day. Thank you. Oh, yes. Are you guys celebrating? Um, we are now. Again, <laughs> where is this pizza that you speak of? Well, I think it's at it's at it's at pizzerias around the valley. Is is like I th- I think that pepperoni is the quintessential pizza. Yeah. Like like is that would somebody disagree that maybe it's just cheese or is pepperoni well widely assumed to be when you think of pizza you think of pepperoni pizza. I think children under the age of seven would say cheese is pizza. Mm-hmm. Uh, p- children under the age of 12, maybe pepperoni. But pepperoni, we're kind of fine. We talked about earlier, is maybe it's kind of a boring pizza. I'm a meat lover's pizza guy. I am too. Yeah, as uh-huh. much meat as possible. Yeah. Uh, have you ever had the side of beef pizza? No. It's really, really good. It's uh, nothing but beef mm. nice. in all of its varieties. That's. Uh... Yeah, really good. You got yep. your flank steak, you got your rib roast, your rump roast. You got them all. They're all That's there. A lot happening there. Hey, um, in the week off, do you guys? I know. I know the team has to kind of retool. They're fixing broken bones. What does BYU Sports Nation? What What are you guys retooling? Ooh, that is a good question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, don't I, think I noticed we have thought about that for one second. <laughs> I noticed that Jerem's gone. <laughs> he's well, yeah. retooling. Did you send him out to go get retreaded? Well, he's uh, taking a mental vacation. Yeah. And honestly, he needs it. Yeah. No, that's what that's what a lot of people have been talking this about. This is a week just for everybody to kind of catch your breath. Yeah, totally. You're a month into the football season. For the players, it's to rest and recuperate. For us, it's, you know, just to kind of catch your breath and get ready for, for the next stretch. Are you guys working out? Or are you, you still, are you, taking, are you soaking in... A lot of ice baths. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to go. I've been in the uh, the cryo chamber. Oh, really? Yeah, where they drop the temperature to like yeah. three hundred. Yeah. you know, below. Uh-huh. I love a good cryo chamber. Oh, wait a minute! You're not supposed to go in there and cry. No, no, it'll stick to your face. Oh, let's wow. turn into little salty ice. Cubes. You learn that the hard way. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it hurts. Did you guys hear about Kevin Durant's little Twitter uh... with fake accounts? Yeah, yeah. Come on, KD. Come on, KD. What's going on with that? It seems like if if I owned a team or I have signed somebody up, I think I would pretty much demand they don't do that. Can you do that? Maybe only in college. Doesn't it seem funny, though, how most of the people that are constantly telling everybody to move on are the ones that can't? Right. Like, come on. I, I'm, I'm in Golden State. I've, I've won a championship. Leave it alone. Walk away. And yet he's you know tweeting about... You know, Billy Donovan mm-hmm. and tweeting about Oklahoma City and, and the team. Come on. Just Come on. move on. Seriously. Do the, what the rest of us do on social media. Cat videos. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. I mean, who who doesn't feel more loved after watching a cat video? Some of those actually are pretty stinking funny. Are they? Yes. Did I hit a nerve here? No. No, you did You're not. You're a cat video guy, aren't you? I am not a cat video guy. <laughs> But when they get retweeted, when they get retweeted onto uh, my timeline, yes. like they they do some funny things. Those cats. So I'm a cute. dog person. Actually. Yeah, I'm a dog person. There needs to be more dog videos. If you notice, a lot of cat videos are anti-dog. Well, that that's the thing. That's the thing. However, <laughs> <laughs> some people retweet things onto my timeline that make cats look like imbeciles. And it's pretty funny. <laughs> Good. I, I mean, I got to go check out your timeline. <laughs> I really do. I, I've, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love, I love cats. I'm just allergic to them. Me too. So. Yeah. If I walk into a house that has cats within, oh. with honestly within minutes. Yeah. I'm done. I'm yeah. I'm I'm out of here. I need to, my yeah. wife. I need to be intubated. I need a tube shoved down my throat <laughs> and my well, eyes swell up. It, it's not a pretty thing. But you know what? It does help me lose weight. So um, <laughs> it's hard to get pizza down that tube. <laughs> so what's, uh, what's going up? What's going to be on your show today, gentlemen? Uh, we have a projection party, Matt, and oh, you're invited. Sweet. You and all of your listeners. Excellent. All, we'll, all 12 of us will be over. Mm-hmm. What does ESPN's Football Power Index Say about BYU's projected win-loss total now. Oh, boy. And how many guaranteed wins do you give BYU the rest of the way? There's nine remaining games. How many guaranteed wins do you see out of the nine? You will put your 401k on it, Matt. Is it it depressing? I don't know. It's up to each individual person. You tell me. Well, yeah. No, I. And by don't. the way, everybody else that makes this prediction, they are also putting your four hundred one k on the correct. Line. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, no one's risking my four hundred one k. This also, is. I'm scared. Okay. We will also have Greg Rubel. Yeah. Uh, on the program, his weekly appearance. You'll hear his show behind the mic with Greg Rubel tonight on BYU Radio, and uh, Brandon Gilliam, head coach of BYU men's soccer. Mm. He'll be on the show. Sweet. Yeah. How are they doing? Uh, season hasn't started yet, but there's change already within the program. <gasps> they're they're back, so to speak. We'll kind of explain what that means. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah. This is exciting. Okay, and you're of course you're celebrating pizza. 
pepperoni pizza day. Okay. Well, it's we, a show. We'll expect, uh, we'll expect you or Terry or yeah. Jeff or somebody to bring some down for yeah, us. Yeah, I'll have Terry go down. We'll see what he brings you. <laughs> because <laughs> you would never no. descend no. to the depths no, 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 no. of Studio no, B. No, once my show's over, it's nap time. I only descend to my basement of my little office and take a nap. Fair enough. Come on over. I'll give you a pillow and a blanket if you need one. <laughs> okay. okay, guys, have a good show, a good projection show. You're not going to want to miss it, folks. It's BYU Sports Nation in five minutes. Five minutes from right now, Spencer and Jason will be stepping up to, of course, knock out another home run. Uh, we, we've got a, a minute here to talk about some empty news. We, we promised you uh, about foul play. Foul play. Spelled differently than you might think. Yes. So a Dutch judge has called foul play, as you said, on a man who abducted and damaged a giant rubber duck. Prosecutors say in a statement that the 45-year-old was sentenced Wednesday to eight weeks in prison for stealing the three-foot-high bright yellow plastic duck from outside the Gouda Duck Cafe in the central Dutch city of Gouda on June 23rd. (gasps) Breathe. The duck toy was later found badly damaged elsewhere in the city, prosecutors say. The prosecution statement says the man will only have to serve two weeks if he undergoes lifestyle training. Oh, wow. Not really sure what that entails. It sounds painful. He also has to pay $880 compensation to the owner of the cafe. What did the rubber duck do to you? (laughs) That's a good point. That's Squirted water in your face? Yeah. Those rubber ducks, though. Why... Okay, I'm not going to ask questions. Lifestyle change. There are some people that are just always going to steal rubber ducks, and there's nothing. You can't change them. You can't change people that want to steal rubber ducks. That's why. That is why the owner of the place had it, because it, people are attracted to rubber ducks. They have races with rubber ducks. So really, he's the one that's the crook here, because yeah. he's, in, he's enticing people. That's right. With a problem, a serious problem. Some people have addictions. Rubber duck addictions. <laughs> that's the technical term. That's the, the doctor in me. That's all I'm going to call it. Hey, and as we, uh, as we like to do, we like to give you a hero story to wrap up the show so you can see that there is hope in the world. Today's hero is a Texas A&M University uh, professor who is being praised after he lent a hand or an entire arm when a student couldn't find a babysitter for her infant before class. Ashton Robinson said in a Facebook post that she emailed um, Henry Musoma, her professor at Mays Business School, to tell him that she would have to miss class because she couldn't find a babysitter for her son, Emmett, in time for the scheduled session. Robinson said she was so surprised when Musoma responded with a simple solution, bring him. Please bring him. The single mom posted a video showing him, showing the grinning professor giving his lecture while uh, toting the infant in uh, one of his arms. Being a single mom is so challenging, but it's people like Dr. Henry Musoma that make life just a tiny bit easier, she wrote. This is why I'm so proud of being an Aggie. Definitely something I'll never forget and can't wait to someday tell Emmett that it's because of people like this that mommy was able to graduate from the best university in the world. Musoma's unconventional solution to Robinson's problem has now been widely praised online, including a university president, the university president, Michael K. Young. So cool stuff. Hero of the day, a professor. You too can be a hero. Just uh, being there for people. That's the goal. That's the show. BYU Sports Nation is up next.